This is CNN Breaking News. I'm Poppy Harlow in New York with Phil Mattingly. It is 6 a.m. here on the East Coast, 1 p.m. in Gaza, where the Israeli military is warning more than 1 million civilians to evacuate south as the war with Hamas intensifies and hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops mass on the border. What you're looking at is new video of leaflets being dropped over Gaza City. Hamas militants are urging people there to defy the orders and to stay in their homes. But we are seeing some Palestinians heeding that warning. Families with small children are walking south, carrying whatever they can. And this morning, Israeli forces have continued to hit Gaza, and Hamas is now claiming airstrikes have killed 13 hostages. Those hostages abducted, they say, during last weekend's massacre. The Israeli military is saying it cannot confirm or deny that claim. Meanwhile, this morning, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Tel Aviv. Meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. You see him there arriving earlier this morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who was in Tel Aviv yesterday, he met with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Jordan. We have team coverage with correspondents on the ground in Israel. Let's start with Becky Anderson in East Jerusalem. Uh, Becky, there is a large Palestinian population where you are. Hamas has called for a day of rage. What's the scene right now? Well, we are between uh, two gates uh, uh, here in East Jerusalem. And the road behind me here, and I'll just get you a, a shot, uh, which has uh, got an awful lot of Israeli security forces, but uh, we are not seeing the Muslim worshippers yet who will come down this road, those who have been at the Al-Aqsa Mosque today for Friday midday prayers. Now, we uh, reports suggest that the Israeli security forces have been selective on age, as we understand it. Only those over the age of 60 have been allowed into what is uh, this extremely uh, contentious uh, compound. Uh, the, um, the Temple Mount, uh, Haram al-Sharif, is this contentious site which houses, of course, the holiest site in Judaism, the Al-Aqsa, which is the third um, holiest site uh, in Islam, and, of course, the site revered by Christians. And it is the real flashpoint over the years and marks a real moment um, always in this conflict. So things are relatively quiet, I have to say. The courtyard, we were overlooking that courtyard during Friday prayers. It was empty. You would normally see that awash with Muslim worshippers, um, those from the West Bank who today are not allowed into East Jerusalem and indeed um, youngsters from here. So, so fewer people, many, many fewer people allowed in uh, to that uh, compound today to pray. We await to see what happens next. We hope things will be contained here. But that's, that's the story here. Uh, as far as Gaza is concerned, uh, we just bring up the map to show where this evacuation order is uh, by the IDF. I mean, the, you know, the question is, where do these people go to um, in, uh, in southern Gaza? The Rafa border closed to those who want to get out of Gaza. So there is no exit at this point. And uh, you're reporting on where the Secretary of State, um, Anthony Blinken, is uh, at present is really important because he's been here, he's been to Jordan, uh, he's met the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas there with King Abdullah. He is now doing the rounds um, to the UAE, to Saudi, to Qatar, to Egypt, trying to get the region on board with some sort of plan that they can that they can sort of bring to the Israelis to say this is a stopgap, short-term solution to sort of de-escalate what's going on at present. I mean, we have to hope that the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, can get 
you know, to, can get the region on board, which is absolutely petrified, the region that is, about an escalation, uh, of course, uh, in all of this. I mean, you know, you talk to anybody around the region, but you've heard this from King Abdullah, for example, and from the Palestinian Authority President uh, Mahmoud Abbas, getting the Palestinian story back on the agenda is what is uh, most important. Let me just explain what we are seeing here. Um, you know, some skirmishes, we've heard bangs this morning of, of stun grenades and a little bit of smoke, but I want to be quite clear about this. I've been in this, I've been in exactly this position uh, during this conflict over the years, and the violence here was, was really bad. Today, things are absolutely calm within reason few pockets of scuffles, but I'm not suggesting for a moment that this sort of, you know, the day of rage has become a violent day. Of course, Hamas calling uh, this, uh, calling this operation, um, this monstrous operation, the Al-Aqsa floods, uh, that speaks to the name of the mosque at the uh, compound, of course, they say that has been desecrated by um, Jewish settlers of late and by uh, the storming of that mosque by Israeli forces over the years. So, um, that's the situation as things stand at present. Uh, as far as what's going on in Gaza is concerned, you can really only hope uh, that, there, uh, that there is some sort of short-term plan before what we expect to be a massive assault by the Israelis. Yeah, Becky, that's critical context based on where you are tied to your years of experience there. We'll be coming back to you. Stay with us. Let's go straight to CNN international correspondent Ben Wiedemann. He is in southern Lebanon. Uh, ben, the scale of this evacuation, this call for evacuation, uh, by the IDF. It's estimated to be more than a million people. What's the plausibility of this actually happening? It's going to be very difficult, first of all, given the fact uh, that the sheer number of people, perhaps 1.1 million people, uh, in a situation where there's very little fuel, uh, the number of people, where are they going to go, where are they going to be housed, uh, the UN and other international organizations in uh, Gaza are saying it's simply not possible, given the number of people and the circumstances. There's an active war. Uh, people are afraid to just move in the streets. So moving 1.1 million people uh, from northern Gaza to the southern part is something that's hard to imagine being done on practical terms. Now, I've been in Gaza before, for instance, in 2014, the Israelis ordered the evacuation of civilians from northern communities, ones near the Israeli border. For the most part, people were able to do that because you could get out by walking, you could get out by riding on a donkey cart, perhaps if you could get a car ride out. Uh, but that was relatively small numbers compared to Gaza City. Gaza City is huge. Where are you going to put all these people when you move them south, when none of the relief supplies, tents, food, water, medicine have been allowed into the Gaza Strip? So it's very difficult to imagine how this could possibly be done. And Hamas is calling on people to stay in their homes, to stay put. Uh, so this is going to be very difficult. And certainly, if people do not or cannot evacuate those areas the Israelis are calling them to leave and this ground offensive goes ahead, probability is it will be a bloodbath. And quickly from where you are, there's also been a call for the, quote, day of rage in southern Lebanon. What are you seeing right now? 
I'm going to step out of the uh, camera for a minute so you can see this is a mosque in the southern Lebanese town of Kana where they've called for a demonstration. People are still inside the mosque. Uh, so you see the Palestinian flag on top and these are Hezbollah flags around uh, the mosque. Uh, however, interestingly, there's no Lebanese flags here. However, there is an Israeli flag. Uh, it's been painted onto the road so that anybody walking by can step upon it as a, an act of hatred, I suppose you could say. But uh, by and large, it's, uh, it's a situation where people are demonstrating, but the border in South Lebanon is quiet today. I actually had an opportunity to speak to the Lebanese information minister who was going on a tour of the border area, and he downplayed the possibility that Lebanon uh, will be drawn into this war. He told me that he thinks the Israelis uh, simply don't have the appetite to go to war again with Lebanon and particularly with Hezbollah. Ben Wiedemann joining us in southern Lebanon. Ben, thank you very much. And joining us now to get more of these questions answered, IDF spokesman Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Peter Lerner. Colonel, thank you for your time again this morning, as always. I do want to ask you for confirmation on what Hamas is claiming, that 13 Israeli prisoners taken hostage during the weekend's attack, they are claiming they have been killed in Gaza by Israeli bombings. Has the IDF confirmed those deaths? Obviously, I can't confirm those, and we have to be cautious with everything Hamas is saying, uh, and their propaganda efforts are uh, extensive. Um, this morning, we are continuing our activities against uh, the Hamas terrorist organization and their infrastructure throughout uh, the Gaza Strip. But specifically, we are, are targeting uh, special operations capabilities. We've taken out their drone capabilities. Uh, they had attack drones uh, that were poised and prepared to be uh, launched at Israel, but we've taken some of those out and we're continuing our effort to make sure Hamas can never ever threaten Israel again. They cannot be permitted to do so. Do not have uh, confirmation of what Hamas is claiming there. Do you have any update, Colonel, on the condition of all of the hostages, any of them that are being held? No, to my knowledge, they've not announced, not released any information except for disinformation. Mm -hmm. And I would be, um, and, and we're, we're looking into it very uh, cautiously. The situation is as such, we believe that Hamas are responsibility for the well-being of all of the hostages that they've taken. And they need to return them immediately. They need to release them to Israel um, and they will bear the consequences for their actions. The situation on the ground uh, obviously is a complicated one and we're taking operating in caution with regard to um, the hostage situation. And of course, it is influencing our operational um, uh, game plan. How is it influencing it? Is it causing the IDF not to take certain actions at this moment that it would otherwise take? It, 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 I, I obviously won't elaborate on operational considerations, but definitely it is part of the planning process and, and, and we do need to take that into consideration. Okay. Our priority is to return them home as soon as possible. The uh, order uh, from recommendation from Israel for about 1.1 million people, according to the UN, to move out of northern Gaza. There have been some reports of a time frame put on that. Is there a time frame that the IDF has put on that? 
So the order is to evacuate immediately. Um, and I would highly recommend that people adhere to that instruction because the, 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 the military is determined to um, take out Hamas's capabilities. You know, they, they operate um, as from a stronghold within Gaza and Gaza City, and they can no longer be permitted to utilize that area to govern us. So I would say, yes, the idea is in order to minimize and mitigate civilian casualties, and this is what you've been asking us up over the last couple of days, uh, what about humanitarian corridor? This is part of the humanitarian effort so that people will not be uh, uh, influenced more than they have to be in this conflict. Hamas, unfortunately, is calling on the other hand, you people do not evacuate, stay and sacrifice yourself, because that exemplifies exactly what we've been saying. Hamas has no regard for human life, Israeli or Palestinian. They will sacrifice everybody as they are proving time and time again. The question is, is there a safe window for the, all of those people, a million plus people, to evacuate to the south? The United Nations says it is, quote, impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences as these airstrikes continue. So here's what we do. When we saw a threat on the border with Gaza, we evacuated the people from the border with Gaza. What is Hamas doing? They're not doing anything. They're sacrificing. They're telling them, no, stop it. The IDF isn't coming. The IDF is operating. We are operating extensively. When they place their drone, their uh, offensive drones, their strike drones, their suicide drones on the roofs of houses, they are jeopardizing everybody in that house. They don't care. So we're telling people, evacuate this area because we are operating. We plan on broadening but, in the scope of our operations in order to achieve our goal. Colonel, I'm going to move on, but what I'm trying to understand is, is there a window of safety, right? The UN has said 24 hours, for example. Is there a window of safety when this evacuation of a highly million people that, can happen? That the, the evacuation takes place immediately. Um, the window of uh, the 24 hours that we're talking about is a, is the highly, highly recommendation, but it could go on for, beyond that. Okay. But I would say the instruction is, is get up and get out of the north of Gaza and Gaza City and move to, move to the south. And just to be clear, though, move to the south, but there is still no crossing out of Gaza for them. I'm, yeah, I, we, we're directing them exactly where we, we expect them not to be, where people, in order to, to safeguard their own lives, should move from. Not to, not to go into Egypt or anything like that, but they should not be in the area which we designated and, and, and have told them specifically. Now, this is like a forewarning of where we're operating, forewarning of where is going to be uh, more extensive combat, where, where there are going to be more extensive strikes. You know, this is, this is the whole idea of trying to make, safeguard people's lives. The instruction to leave is to save people's lives. So they should leave from the north of Gaza, from the Gaza city. They should go to the south of the city, of the, of the uh, Gaza Wadi, and they should, they, should, the, the, they should set up there. If they stay, they are jeopardizing themselves. Okay. This is what I, I'm trying to say. I, hear I know you. that there are concerns, considerations. There are problems, of course. I, I would say Hamas need to deal with all of those problems of how to shift people from the north to the south, like we did. We took people from their houses in the south of Israel and we moved and, them elsewhere. And, then, and Hamas have the, the responsibility, rather than failing the people of Gaza, they should help the people of Gaza. And then, Colonel, I think the question becomes, for how long can they remain in the south? Will an order like Israel has given in the north then come to them in the south? 
If there is our, no crossing that uh, opens. Operation, our operation is, is focused towards Hamas, not to the people of Gaza, because the people of Gaza are not our enemy. The Hamas terrorist organization that has butchered uh, over 1,200 people in Israel um, cannot be permitted to govern the Gaza Strip and use it as a staging ground against Israel. So when we recommend to the people of Gaza, go to the south, you should listen, go to the south, do not stay in Gaza City, do not stay in the north. And yes, everybody should listen to that recommendation. I do want to ask you about a report this morning out of Human Rights Watch, which says that it has verified videos showing multiple airbursts of artillery fired with white phosphorus over the Gaza City port. CNN has spoken to experts. We cannot categorically conclude that or independently verify that. But so people know white phosphorus fire causes severe burns, often down to the bone that are slow to heal. Uh, that is according to the group. Is the IDF using, has no, the IDF I, used white phosphorus, Colonel? Categorically, no. The question of the hostages, if indeed what Hamas is saying is true, elevates the concern about the level of intelligence for the IDF to be able to carry out uh, its mission within Gaza. Can you say confidently that your intelligence within Gaza is much stronger now than it was one week ago that makes you more confident that as you carry out what is to come, it sounds like imminently from you, you can do so while protecting those hostage lives. We will put the priority of the well-being of the hostages, of course, at the top of our priority list. But we need to also balance out the needs of destroying Hamas's capabilities. So, of course, when we are considering uh, mobilizing, when considering airstrikes, when we're considering special forces operations, then we will need to take all of those things into consideration. Unfortunately, it is, again, it's Hamas that are set, have set the stage for this unfortunate development. They could end that and release them immediately, as we expect. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, thank you for joining us, especially at such a critical moment in all of this. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this morning, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Israel. He is there meeting with Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Also, we have more on Israel's warning to all civilians in Gaza City. You just heard us talking about this with this warning to immediately, you heard from the IDF colonel there, move south. We're going to talk about the U.N. saying it is impossible. So what does this mean? Much more ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Two very senior top U.S. officials are on the ground right now in the Middle East. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken as the U.S. pushes for diplomacy to prevent the Israeli-Hamas conflict from broadening. This morning, Blinken is traveling to Qatar after meeting with the Palestinian Authority, President Mahmoud Abbas. That meeting happened in Jordan earlier today. He spent Thursday in Israel meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as he works to secure evacuations and the release of those Americans also held hostage in Gaza. Uh, Secretary Austin traveled in Tel Aviv just a few hours ago. He arrived there a few hours ago. He will be meeting with Netanyahu and other High-ranking officials. Our Alex Marquardt joins us live from Washington, D.C. I mean, such a show of how critical this is for the United States to have both of them there with these key meetings at the same time. What can you share? Yeah, it really is. And that's the goal from both these men is to uh, really to communicate this uh, this solidarity uh, with Israel as they retaliate against Hamas. Uh, so Austin uh, arrived today. You could see him there getting off the plane, greeted by his Israeli counterpart. He's uh, expected to speak momentarily. Uh, he's also meeting with the Israeli war cabinet, uh, as well as Prime Minister Netanyahu. The Pentagon and Austin have said for days that they're going to get Israel whatever it needs in, in terms of weapons. The first uh, American shipment of weapons weapons has arrived in Israel already. Uh, the focus in terms of the weaponry is going to be more intercepts, interceptor rockets for their extremely effective uh, Iron Dome air defense system, as well as precision-guided munitions that Israel has been using and will continue to use uh, to hit Hamas in, in Gaza. Uh, but guys, really the focus here is by both Blinken and Austin to show that U.S. solidarity. These these top-level Biden administration officials are not in Israel uh, to call for peace or for a ceasefire. Uh, they're not asking Israel to show restraint. They really are there uh, to show uh, support for Israel's retaliation uh, against Hamas. Alex, U.S. officials are also trying to figure out how to address American citizens, both in Gaza, but also in Israel, uh, if they want to depart. We're learning that charter planes may be sent to take American citizens home. How's that going to play out? Well, this is one of the top priorities. Of course, you can understand there are a lot of Americans uh, in Israel who are trying to get home. We know that the major American carriers, Delta, American United, they have stopped flying because of security reasons. Uh, so we understand from the State Department that today there will be charter flights available. They'll use Turkish airlines, Israeli airlines, other regional airlines to fly these American citizens, citizens first to Europe. Uh, and then from Europe, they will be able to uh, uh, to get onwards, uh, to get on uh, U.S. carriers from Europe onwards uh, to, uh, to the states. Of course, there are major concerns about Palestinian Americans as well uh, who may be stuck in Gaza. And that's why uh, Secretary Blinken is traveling around in the region, specifically to Egypt, because it's Egypt that will help the most in terms of uh, creating a humanitarian corridor to get out of the Gaza Strip. Yeah, yes. An intensive diplomatic process. Alex Marquardt Forrest in Washington, D.C. Thank you. So this morning, Israel's military is warning, as you've heard, all civilians to leave Gaza City and head right. south. 
It is the clearest signal yet that Israel plans to intensify, it sounds like very quickly, its military operations in Gaza after those Hamas terror attacks over the weekend. The U.N. calls the mass evacuation an impossible task that would have devastating humanitarian consequences. The Palestinian Health Ministry says more than 1,500 people have died so far in Gaza after days of Israel's airstrikes and a total blockade without water. With us now again this morning, military analyst retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. The U.N. says this is impossible. I'm not sure if you just heard the colonel from the IDF speaking with us who said evacuate to the south immediately. And he did say that they would intensify their strikes. He didn't talk about a ground incursion. But the U.N. says it's impossible. What do you see? Well, I think it's going to be really difficult, Poppy. Good morning to you. Yes, when uh, Peter Lerner was talking about this, uh, he was talking about this area of evacuation right here. So uh, this area is the northern part of, of Gaza. It is the most densely populated area in this strip right here. So over 1.1 million people live right where my hand is. Now, when you look at uh, the possibilities here, we're talking about going down uh, this way to the south uh, toward the Rafah crossing. Uh, so this is going to be a very, very difficult thing for, for them to do. The Rafah crossing is right on the Egyptian border right here. This is what it looks like when uh, normal times, more or less normal times are, are present. Uh, it is a very difficult place uh, to get to under these conditions because, quite frankly, uh, the close, the crossing is closed. And it's going to be very hard for all the citizens of Gaza from the northern part uh, to not only go to the south, but if they're told to move out of Gaza, the Egyptians won't let them do that. So that's going to limit them. That's going to box these people in, uh, in this southern territory right here, which has its own issues, of course. Let's ask you a follow-up. I mean, that is really key, the Rafah crossing in the south and what Egypt is going to allow or not allow. And it, our reporting has been that the, the White House, the, the U.S. has been in these discussions about what Egypt may allow. With your experience in the region, do you think that changes? Do you think they open some safe passage for some amount of time for civilians into Egypt? They might get a lot of pressure to do that, Poppy, and it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this how this might unfold. Uh, the Egyptians have uh, sometimes been inflexible diplomatically when it comes to things like this. They have a lot of reasons not to allow people uh, from Gaza into their territory, economic reasons, uh, the overpopulation in certain areas. This is a very desolate part of Egypt that we're talking about here. It's the uh, beginning of the Sinai Peninsula, and it's not uh, an area where there are a lot of there's a lot of infrastructure. Structure. Uh, there's basically no running water, uh, no sewage system set up, no refugee camps set up. So there is a lot of there are a lot of limitations here to what the Egyptians can physically do at this point in time. If that changes, if there's some massive tent city that's built up or something like that, uh, then perhaps the Egyptians might let them in. But to, to do that within a day or two, that's really hard, really difficult. Colonel Ling, if, if we could, can we step back for a minute? To, it's difficult. I think it seems a little bit abstract. 1.1 million people evacuating immediately in the middle of a bombing and an airstrike and artillery campaign. <laughs> but the other huge element here is just the, the population density, how closely packed uh, residents are within this very, very small space. Can you give people a sense of what that actually looks like? 
Yeah, absolutely, Phil. So what you're seeing right here is this is Gaza City, about 583,000 people just in that particular area. But add all the other places right here. And then by the time you get to right about here, you've got a population of 1.1 million, which is basically half of the population of the entire Gaza territory. Now, that's this part right here. Now, when you get down to the south, to Khan Yunis, which is originally started as a refugee camp for Palestinians, uh, that has 172,000 people. And then right on the border with Egypt, uh, the town of Rafah has about 138,000 people in it. So that's what this looks like in terms of different population centers right here. And then you've got the population density itself. You've got over 21,000 people per square mile in Gaza. Compare that to Washington, 3,632. A vast difference. Gives you some idea of how things are when it comes to this. Yeah, six times more dense than Washington, three to four times more dense than Los Angeles. Wow. Colonel Cedric Layton, we appreciate it. Thank you. You bet. So a CNN investigation into where Hamas militants trained for their attack on Israel. How it appears they were able to do it in plain sight, not far from Israeli troops. And former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett will join us from Tel Aviv. Stay with us. Well, there are more Israeli strikes underway right now in Gaza. We're also learning more about how Hamas was able to execute Saturday's terrorist attack inside of Israel. A senior Hamas official says they were preparing for the invasion for two years and a CNN investigation shows militants trained in at least six sites across Gaza, including camps just over the border with Israel. And because of the report you're about to see, the IDF says it will investigate all of this after the war. Our senior international correspondent, chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, reports. Propaganda videos put out by Hamas reveal chilling details about the years of preparations that went into Saturday's bloody attacks right under Israel's nose. Analyzing metadata from the videos, a CNN investigation can reveal the presence of at least six training sites inside Gaza, one just 720 meters from the most heavily fortified and patrolled part of Israel's border. In that camp, Hamas recreated an Israeli compound with elements of the nearby border crossing, including an insignia of the Erez battalion. The videos show they even practiced taking prisoners and zip-tying their hands at the camp. Satellite imagery indicates the camp was constructed within the last year and a half. At two other locations in the southern part of Gaza, Hamas trained for their audacious paraglider assault, rehearsing takeoffs and landings. At all six sites, two years of satellite imagery reviewed by CNN shows no indication of offensive Israeli military action. The imagery instead shows that in the last two years, some camps even expanded into surrounding farmland and that there was activity in the last several months at the camps. The stunning revelations raise questions as to how Hamas was able to train so openly, so close to the border for so long, and why Israeli officials were unable to pick up on and prevent the October 7th attack. Clarissa Ward, CNN, Reim, Israel. Well, the security lapse prior to Hamas's assault over the weekend has many wondering what will be done to make sure it never happens again. Joining us now is former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Sir, we appreciate your time this morning. We want to look forward and kind of what to expect, what you're seeing. Uh, but to start there, I think it's been striking 
uh, when you listen to Israeli officials, IDF officials, as they try and figure out what happened, including this from a retired general to our colleague last night. Take a listen. We fail. We fail. I feel ashamed. We fail to, to protect them. They, they live here. They are the first line of, of, of all Israel, of our sovereignty. And we fail. We fail to, to, to defend them. It's, 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 a, it's a personal humiliation and national humiliation, humiliation at the same time. And, sir, I think what stuck out to me, you had an interview with Channel 11 News where you're talking about how the international community views Israel right now. You said, I don't want their pity. I want them to fear us. I want them to understand our strength. Are you concerned that kind of the, the how Israel is perceived has been punctured over the course of the last six days? Oh, absolutely. And uh, whoever that general is, uh, is correct. Uh, there's no doubt that the first and uh, foremost duty of a sovereign state is to protect its citizens. And uh, factually, 1,500 uh, Israeli citizens were slaughtered by uh, Nazi monsters. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to fix all of this. Uh, look, uh, military history teaches us that time and again, uh, there, there's a limit to, uh, there are mistakes like Pearl Harbor, like Barbarossa, like 9-11, like the Yom Kippur War, and we're going to have to fix it. Uh, but now our view is forward and moving to the next stage from collecting ourselves and uh, kicking out and killing all the uh, terrorists that entered Israel to the next stage, which is the offensive stage. I also want our viewers to understand, Mr. Prime Minister, you have stepped up into the IDF reserve, so that's the role that you are serving now as well, serving your country. But you say we're going to have to fix it, meaning the intelligence. The question is, do you believe that fix has happened enough that whatever is about to imminently be carried out on the ground in northern Gaza can be done while protecting the lives specifically of the hostages, it includes many Israelis and Americans, as you know, Hamas has claimed overnight that 13 of the hostages have been killed by Israeli airstrikes. The IDF cannot confirm that, but it does raise the question of, is the intelligence now there much better than a week ago? We've collected ourselves. We're ready, and uh, over the next uh, period of time, we're going to go on attack. Uh, the attack is going to be very forceful. What we're doing right now is evacuating uh, the Gazan uh, residents, the uninvolved people that, that are not militants, telling them to move southward of uh, the city of Gaza so we can uh, focus on uh, the Hamas uh, terrorists. And uh, our goal is clear, to wipe out Hamas off the face of Earth. Sir, to that point, there were debates in 2009, 2014, the last time there was uh, Israeli forces incursion uh, in Gaza about the scale, uh, how long to stay, whether or not to stay permanently or for a longer period of time. When you say very forceful, what does that mean? Well, it means, uh, to your question, I would uh, anticipate <clears throat> months or years uh, of uh, what we need to do because uh, we have to, we'll have to hunt down every single Hamasnik and uh, kill him. Takes time. So potentially years? I mean, that, that sounds like a reoccupation uh, of Gaza. Go ahead. No, Israelis, uh, we're, 
we have no, no we lost nothing in uh, Gaza. We we don't desire Gaza, all right? But we do uh, insist on our security. The whole mindset of uh, being able to live side by side with uh, a Nazi-type regime has collapsed. That doesn't work. We have to topple the regime. Uh, you know, the, the West did not say, you know what, we'll, we'll uh, respond to the original Nazis in World War II and they hit them hard, but stop. No, it continued until they eradicated the whole Nazi regime. That's what we're going to need to do here. And it's going to take time. It, it took time for America to collect itself after the Pearl Harbor surprise attack and for the Soviet Union to collect itself after Barbarossa. We don't have that amount of time and we don't need that amount of time. Uh, we're fixing things on the fly. IDF is a powerful uh, army. The Israeli people are a people of lions, a brave people. The, I've, I've had friends that, that have lost their lives, sons and daughters that have lost their lives. But I'll tell you this, in every single military unit that I've seen over the past five days, there's about 130% to 150% enlistment rate, meaning people who are already discharged from reserve unit, they might be 45 years old, they're insisting Enlist me, give me a, a weapon, I want to go fight. Every single Israeli man and woman wants to, uh, to, and is in consensus that we need to destroy and obliterate our enemies. And then what? And I don't ask that uh, flippantly, but this, there will be a power vacuum here. What happens next? Do you have a sense, is there a plan for governance in Hamas or in Gaza if you eliminate Hamas, as you say, is the goal? We'll, we'll figure it out. It, uh, just like if in 1944, you'd ask uh, America after you and uh, everyone, what do you do after and then what after the Nazis? We'll take care of them and we'll figure it out. Right now, we have to destroy Hamas. Prime Minister, Finally, before you go, what is your assessment of how you believe the Biden administration has responded to this over the last week? I want to say something to uh, be loud and clear. President Biden and the American administration and the great people of the United States of America have shown that they are the best friend, the strongest ally at a time, a very difficult time for us. I'm saying this as a former prime minister. I mean, if there was any question where the United States of America stands, there's no question anymore. You have stood up to the plate and you are behind us. We're gonna do the fighting. We don't need America to do our fighting. We never asked America to fight for us, but they're, the overwhelming, warmth that we're getting from the great people of the United States of America. It strengthens every single man and woman in Israel, and we're grateful for that. I want to thank you and the American people and President Biden. Former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, thank you for your time from Tel Aviv today. Thank you. And now we want to show you this video out of Gaza City. Take a look at this. This is drone footage from a journalist. His name, Motaz Aziza. We were going to speak with him on the program, bring you an interview with him this morning from inside of Gaza City. But he could not join us last minute because he is currently evacuating. Look at this.
They want Gaza City to be empty, to destroy it more. A literal ghost town. We were sad because we lost family members, we lost houses, but right now we're literally losing our whole homeland and no one knows anything about us. So pray for Gaza, please. Mataz Aziza has been reporting on the ground. He's been capturing these remarkable, dramatic images and this footage, drone footage, of large-scale destruction at his home, even. Uh, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. I don't know what should I say. But believe me, it's the most sadness that Gaza ever had. He even reported from the scene where an Israeli airstrike that killed at least 15 of his family members happened. We will try to bring him to you in any form we can when it is safe for him to join us. Well, here in the U.S., House Republicans aren't any closer to finding a speaker. After their initial choice, Steve Scalise has dropped out of the race. Without a speaker, there's virtually nothing the House can do to provide aid or support to Israel. So what happens next? Great question. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We are continuing to monitor the latest on the ground in Israel and in Gaza. Here in the U.S., House Republicans are back to square one, seriously, in their search for a speaker, after Majority Leader Steve Scalise made this announcement last night. I just share with my colleagues, and I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the speaker-designee. If you look at where our conference is, there's still work to be done. Uh, our conference still has to come together and is not there. Uh, there are still some people that have their own agendas. And I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. This country is counting on us to come back together. So Scalise withdrew just 24 hours, by the way, after he was nominated, once it became clear that he did not have the votes to get to 217. Now, the question remains, it's a fairly important one at this point. Can anyone in the conference actually get 217 votes? And here's the actual reason why it's important. Without a speaker, there's nothing the House can do regarding Israel's war with Hamas or anything else. And that includes just a simple resolution to support Israel, let alone vote to provide it aid. We're told the House Republican Conference is expected to regroup in a few hours behind closed doors to figure out the next steps. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Honestly, Republicans said them all themselves last night in their airing of grievances. <laughs> Let's bring in CNN political commentator Errol, uh, Errol Lewis and CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avlon. Um, Errol, I actually I want to play some of the comments, or at least one of the comments, uh, to our colleague Manu Raju, which I think really captured things. Take a listen. Now is not the time to be attacking our ally. You're not going to find me uh, throwing verbal grenades uh, at the Israeli leadership. Psalms 122.6 is very clear. You, pay, you pray for the peace of Jerusalem and those who do will prosper. 
I guess the former president just disagrees with that. I don't know where he's coming from. He's just wrong. Let's make it clear. He's a fool. He's a fool. Only a fool would make those kind of comments. That obviously was not about the House Republican Conference. It was about the leading Republican But we will get to that. Comment. We are going to get to that in a second. But I'll, I'll read for you what Austin Scott told Manu He said, how does this make you guys look? And Congressman Scott said, it makes us look like idiots, um, which was not a, a, an isolated comment. Not, yeah, and it's not wrong. Um, on, on the other hand, in, a, in an odd way, this is the system working uh, in the sense that Go on. Well, well, I mean, look, they they represent the divisions of the country, right? I mean, you know, unless they cross the aisle and work out some kind of stable, centrist governing pattern, uh, which is at odds with the politics of how the House has been run for the last generation at this point, uh, we're not going to move forward. You know, this whole idea of this old what they call the Hastert rule, that unless you can get a majority of just your conference, no legislation ever sees the light of day. That is not that was never a good idea. It, and it, it can't work. And now we've seen, you know, sort of proof of concept that it can't work. You can't even get yourself to 218. You can't get yourself to 217. You can't get a Speaker of the House. You can't pass a resolution. You can't pay yourselves, ultimately. You can't even run, run the country. And they're going to have to figure this out. We've seen it in parliamentary democracies. Uh-huh. We're used to it, right? Where they, they, you know, you try and you try and you try again. Can we get a coalition? Can we, can we put people together? They're unable to do it without Democrats. I think that is crystal clear at this point. They're going to have to figure out how to make it happen. Look, amen, brother, on the centrist solution. But let's also be real that this is a problem within the Republican Party, right? Nancy Pelosi didn't have a difficult time when she had a similarly narrow margin. And and Democrats got a lot done, some of which was bipartisan. This is a problem within the Republican conference, and it predates Kevin McCarthy, as we've discussed. This goes back to Boehner, Ryan, now Scalise, less than 24 hours. And there is no obvious person who can unite. Now they're saying maybe Patrick McHenry, the interim speaker, can do this. Errol's right that ultimately necessity may be the mother of invention. Um, I've got an op-ed that's going to come out later today on CNN uh, that makes the case that, look, ultimately you're going to have to put forward a Republican who can garner some Democratic votes because you cannot be... Who's that? Look, it could a number of people. See, uh, Tom Cole but from who, Oklahoma. wants it? Well, you know, I think plenty of people <laughs> want it if push comes to shove. Tom Cole's one. Don Bacon's another, you hear. Uh, Mike Gallagher. Um, you know, th- there, there are a number of folks who, who I think would be pretty strong and could have that. Again, all you need to do is liberate yourself from the disproportionate influence of the far right, the people who Republicans themselves have called arsonists. Um, and it's not going to be Jim Jordan. Um, and, 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 and then Hakeem Jeffries just has to say, you know, have Democrats, a handful of them, vote to get this done. That's the only way that so it's going to get done. Scalise was supposed to be that person. Mm, Scalise yeah. and, and Jeffries have a, a, a good personal relationship. They've both talked about it. I think they played on the House baseball team together, that sort of a thing. They actually yes. sort of had a, a yes. good social relationship. Scalise threw in his cards because he had so many extremists in his conference who said, we will take you down, we will McCarthy you, we will make it impossible for you to either become speaker or to remain speaker. As long as that's the case, yes, it is a very difficult it, task. But that's what's so crazy, right? This is every, everyone I spoke to on the Hill, on, on Republican chiefs of staff, were saying, look, Scalise is trusted by the members, right? He's very conservative, but he's trusted. McCarthy never had the trust. He never had friends. Scalise had that, right? It's, and, 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 you know, and they just kicked him to the curb 24 hours after he got the vote. Yeah. I, I do want to get this in before we go, guys. Yes. And that is what we played for you. That was Republican presidential candidates responding in disgust, I think is fair, to yes. what President Trump has said recently this week about 
Israel and, by the way, Hezbollah. Let's listen to the former president. This was Wednesday. And they said, gee, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack from the north because that's the most vulnerable spot. I said, wait a minute. You know, Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. So he said Hezbollah is smart, but he also has been critical of Netanyahu and Israel in this moment, John. He cannot help but make it all about himself. This is another example. These rambling, incoherent, unhinged statements from the former president attacking one of our closest allies at a time of maximum pain, right? Blaming the victim, in effect, while praising a terrorist organization who's targeting civilians in Israel. You know, it's the kind of thing that in a rational political world would be a disqualifier. It's self-evidently that. You heard the clips earlier from some of the people running for the Republican nomination finally standing up to Trump and condemning his comments. There's absolutely no moral excuse except that he sees everything through the prism of himself, even a massive terror attack in Israel. I mean, another way to put that is uh, the, the, the argument for Trump is falling apart right in front of him. And I think we sh- we're seeing him lash out for that reason. You know, he, he's supposed to be a successful businessman. We're seeing in court that maybe he's not so successful. Mm. He's supposed to be, you know, on the world stage doing all kinds of things, you know, move the embassy to Jerusalem and so forth. Netanyahu is like, you know what, we're with Biden right now. That part of his argument is falling apart. I think we're going to continue to see him lash out as long as he feels like his chances of recapturing the White House are, are crumbling in front of him. It was fascinating to watch his team actually have a cleanup effort last night. Several press releases, mm-hmm. several. Uh, they don't usually do that in a formalized manner. I'm sure the president will, former president will undercut that shortly. Uh, Errol Lewis, John Avalon, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, we're going to show you pictures uh, live of East Jerusalem this morning where police are patrolling the area where protests are happening. We are going to stay with this throughout the morning. Also, police in cities across the United States are on high alert today after a former Hamas chief called for a day of, quote, global rage in support of Palestinians in Gaza. We're going to take a look at the preparations right now here in New York City. Gaza under intense bombardment. Israel telling the UN to evacuate the northern Gaza Strip. So that we will be able to continue to strike military targets belonging to Hamas. The impacts must be not only having a physical effect in Gaza, but a psychological effect. Their mission is to wage war on Hamas. Hamas's war is a war against civilians. We haven't had a situation like this since the Yom Kippur War. The level of calamity is indescribable. I just want my children back. I know the whole world is fighting for them. We pulled them out of the cars when they were still burning, getting bullets on the ambulance itself. I haven't seen such horrifying and terrible things. I feel ashamed. We failed to protect them. I've lost friends. Friends of mine have lost brothers and sisters. We like to say never again, but it's not a cliche. It's real. Well, good morning, everyone. It is Friday. We are still following the breaking news with much more to come this morning. I'm Phil Mattingly with Poppy Harlow in New York. It is 7 a.m. on the East Coast, 2 p.m. in Gaza, where the Israeli military is warning more than one million civilians to evacuate south as the war with Hamas intensifies and hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops mass on the border. You're looking at thousands of leaflets being dropped over Gaza City this morning. Hamas militants are urging people to defy the order and stay in their homes. But we're seeing some Palestinians heeding the warning. Families with small children heading south, carrying whatever they can. And this morning, Israeli airstrikes and artillery continue to pound Gaza. Hamas is now claiming those strikes have killed 13 hostages who were abducted during the weekend massacre. The Israeli military is saying it cannot confirm 
that claim. Meanwhile, this morning, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in Tel Aviv to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. That meeting happened in Jordan. CNN senior international correspondent Ben Wiedemann starts us off with his coverage live this morning in Lebanon. Ben, for our viewers who know you, they know how extensively you have reported throughout Gaza for years. Your assessment is so much better than almost anyone else. Is that possible for a million plus people to immediately leave the north and go south? The UN says it is not without catastrophic consequences. No, it's, it's, it's not possible to do it in a reasonable amount of time. In fact, the UN, the word they used is impossible. You're talking about 1.1 million people uh, going from the northern part, the area around Gaza City, which is quite large, uh, to the south. There is an active bombardment of Gaza going on. There, the fuel has essentially run out. There's no way to move those people from the south, from the north to the south. And then when they go to the south, where do they stay? Already more than 420,000 people in Gaza have been displaced. That's 20% of the population. Many of them have gone to Gaza City from the outlying areas, the areas like Beit Hanun and Beit Lahia and the northern edge of the Gaza Strip, very near the main crossing into Israel, the Erez crossing. And that's where a lot of the fighting has been going on. And so there, therefore, it's just logistically, almost mission impossible. Now, the Israelis aren't giving a timeline for when this should happen, but uh, under these circumstances, it's almost mission impossible, Poppy. Yeah, I mean, we heard from the IDF colonel last hour saying immediately, go immediately. Um, so, Ben, thank you very much for all your reporting and perspective on that. Law enforcement in cities around the globe are on high alert this morning after a former Hamas leader called for a, quote, day of rage across the Muslim world today, telling them to hold mass protests and go out and harm Israelis and Jews. National Jewish organizations are also on edge as they monitor extremist chat rooms and propaganda channels. We want to go straight to Becky Anderson, yeah, who is in East Jerusalem right now. Uh, there has been a lot of anxiety leading up to today. Becky, I, I see as you're trying to clear your camera shot now. Yeah, there has been a lot. You've reported so much from where you are right now. Talk about yeah. what you're seeing. So this is tense. This is a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. And many of the young men in this uh, area have not been allowed into the Al-Aqsa Mosque today to pray at uh, midday prayers. They'd normally go in if there wasn't a selective pro process, but clearly today the Israelis have selected them by age, men, men and women by age. So many of the uh, youngsters here haven't had an opportunity uh, to get to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, so they have been praying on these streets here. Look, if I describe this as a sort of tense calm today, I think that's how that, that would be fair. I've been in this area before and it's been uh, very chaotic and very violent. So I've spoken to uh, some of the uh, older ladies and gentlemen who did get an opportunity uh, today to get into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they they described it as uh, as really concerning and, and very worrying. They prayed, they came back, um, and uh, they're now back in their homes. But what's happening here now? Um, is the Israeli security forces just pushing people back. They're trying to avoid something kicking off uh, here. Apologies for the cameras they, uh, as they move us back. What, 
I don't know if you saw in the shot earlier on a very big black truck. That is what's known as a skunk truck. And it's used by the Israeli forces to sort of clear demonstrators, a bit like perhaps our viewers will have seen in the past water gun, uh, water cannons uh, shot from uh, big trucks. You can smell uh, the uh, acrid nature of what is uh, chemical having been uh, dispersed from that truck. We've heard stun grenades, uh, stun grenades going off this morning. Not a lot. Again, you know, this, there is a, as I say, there's a sort of you know, uneasy sense of calm uh, on what is this day of protest that has been called by Hamas today. Um, the uh, stun grenades are, this is the, the back end of one that I found on the, uh, on the street here. So, um, yeah, very much uh, a sense of what happens next. What happens next for the next series of Friday prayers, which come, of course, in a couple of hours from now, who will be on the streets and how will the uh, Israeli security deal with those on the streets is really uh, the next question, guys. Becky Anderson reporting live in East Jerusalem today. Thank you so much for all of that, Becky. Now, here in New York, the governor says there are no active nor are there credible threats, but the NYPD says every member is ready and in uniform. Our chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, joins us now. I have a lot of friends who are really worried. A lot of people are really scared. Should they be? I don't think so. There's a certainly an awareness on the part of law enforcement that there's a heightened threat environment. But I think a lot of this, frankly, has to do with stirring fear on the Internet. Um, clearly the call by the Hamas leader to, you know, show your anger in events uh, today. But that wasn't an explicit call for violence as much as he was calling on global demonstrations. He called for violence from Palestinians um, in the region. So this is, a, this is a thing where people have to have a heightened awareness. Law enforcement has to have a heightened presence. And that's a lot of what we've been seeing developing in New York City with their strategy. In the morning at the World Trade Center, a show of force. High visibility counter-terrorism teams have been deployed across the city at symbolic locations including synagogues and mosques. NYPD Chief John Hart. So the strategy is one to, to show some reassurance to the community that there is a good police presence out there. That's probably the foremost uh, uh, idea. But secondary to that is we want to be fluid. So we are going to be moving around. We have a robust deployment. We're hitting just in the counterterrorism realm. We're hitting over 400 locations a day. At NYPD's headquarters, a morning intelligence briefing is tracking the threat stream. So we continue to see public statements from Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and other affiliated Palestinian militant groups claiming credit for ongoing strikes, ongoing rocket attacks, etc. Um, we also have seen public statements from Al-Qaeda and their affiliates, as well as ISIS and other like-minded extremists online. Rebecca Weiner is Deputy Commissioner for Intelligence and Counterterrorism. Everything finds a way of coming back to New York City. Uh, as you well know, it's the media capital of the world. It's an incredibly diverse environment with large communities from everywhere where a conflict might emerge. And in this case, a large Jewish population, a large Palestinian population. Good morning, everybody. The NYPD has been briefing major city police departments along with hundreds of private security partners as part of Operation Shield, a global intelligence sharing network. National Jewish organizations are also on high alert as they monitor extremist chat rooms and propaganda channels 
including a worldwide call from a former Hamas leader for supporters to, quote, show their anger, unquote, on Friday. While there was not an explicit reference to violence, the messaging caught the attention of people like Mitch Silber, who runs a Jewish community security organization. There are going to be extra precautions that we're going to advise that institutions take uh, as kids are getting out of school on Friday, as people are going to synagogue on Friday night and, and Saturday morning. We're in regular touch with NYPD requesting extra patrols in Jewish areas. We asked Oren Siegel, vice president for the Center on Extremism for the Anti-Defamation League, to take us inside the threat stream. Not only are we seeing those who are apologists for Hamas, those who glorify the messages, but we're seeing people on the far right that have traditionally engaged in violence against the Jewish community, full-throatedly supporting those activities. Anti-Semitism is always the thing that brings extremist groups across the ideological spectrum together. We are seeing this now in ways that we have never seen before. The ADL and other Jewish groups say the events in Israel and Gaza are driving a tsunami of threats. In the last 36 hours, we have seen a thousand percent increase in non-specific threats against Jews and Israelis by groups that we track in the United States. And New York has seen the results of propaganda turned into bloodshed, a series of bombings in 2016, in 2017, a ramming attack that killed eight people on a bike path, and an attempted suicide bomber in the city's busiest subway station, and many more plots that have been prevented, which is what they are counting on. So full disclosure, uh, just to remind people, I'm the former deputy commissioner of intelligence and counterterrorism. So many of the people in that story were my colleagues um, and being in touch with them. We're still not seeing that specific credible threat, but they're also out there scanning for it because in the lone wolf world that lives in the dark corners of the Internet, there's always that one individual. And to Poppy's point earlier, the anxiety inside the Jewish American community right now is at a level that I don't know that I've ever seen before um, tied to all of this. I, I do want to ask you, since we have you, um, there, we have focused a ton on the hostages, more than 100 plus is the expectation in uh, Gaza right now that were taken over the, during the weekend terror attack. A uh, handful of Americans, we don't have specific numbers. If you're a U.S. official, what are you doing right now trying to find information? So if you're a U.S. official, you are talking to, um, you're talking to the people in Qatar, you're talking to the Egyptians, you're talking to your government um, contacts and allies around the region to see, because this is not a conversation that can happen directly right now between the Israelis or the United States, as much as it can um, through regional partners that still have a dialogue. And you're trying to figure out um, the next phase of the Israeli military steps um, and where that puts the hostages and who can intervene and how. It's very complicated diplomatically and militarily. Are you surprised how little information U.S. officials seem to have? I think U.S. officials may have more information than we know, uh, but given the sensitivity of the lives in the balance, uh, it's just not a time when they're going to be sharing intelligence. John Miller, thank you. Excellent report. Thanks.
The Biden administration is working with Israel and Egypt to try, try to ensure some safe passage out of Gaza. This hour, we'll get an update from the White House. John Kirby will join us. And countless Israelis have returned to their homeland from abroad to join in the war effort. We're going to speak to a man who spent 20 years in the IDF and just arrived in Israel from Massachusetts, who will fight alongside his four daughters. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We are showing you or going to show you live pictures of two podiums where Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is expected to speak. He is in Tel Aviv, arriving earlier this morning as part of what has been a significant show of both support and to some degree forced by top U.S. officials over the course of the last several days. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in the country yesterday as part of a significant Middle East effort that he is in the midst of. Secretary Austin on a very business-like trip, given U.S. defense assistance, which has already been arriving in the country. We expect to hear from him shortly. We will bring that to you live when the Secretary of Defense speaks. Now, this morning, Hamas says new airstrikes are headed toward Tel Aviv. In the days since the unprecedented Hamas attacks, 300,000 Israeli reservists have been called to active duty. Countless Israelis have returned to their homeland from abroad to join in the war effort. Our next guest served more than 20 years in the Israel Defense Forces before moving to the U.S. and becoming an American citizen. Now living in the Boston area, he just traveled back home to Israel to fight alongside his four daughters who are also serving in the IDF. Joining us now is Boaz Arbel. A former Israeli Air Force officer, he's now working as a coordinator between the Israeli Air Force and ground forces on the front lines. Sir, we appreciate your time. Um, the moment you decided to go back, walk us through it. Yeah, that was a Saturday morning. We woke up to horrible news, like un unbelievable, unbearable for any human being. And uh, the minute we heard that, that was a no-brainer for me that this time it's going to be, it, it is something big and it's going to be something bigger than ever, unfortunately. And uh, for the last 14 years, I've been living in the in the U.S., became a U.S. citizen. But that, that touched me so hard. I said, I cannot stay here. I hear I'm in Boston because right now I'm in Israel and uh, I decided to just take everything and come over to help. Not to mention that my daughters are here all serving in the idea. I wanted to ask you about that. I know people understand, but the, the military service in Israel, the connection to families, your story is so emblematic of the, the connectivity uh, that all Israelis have with the IDF, with the armed forces. Four daughters currently serving. I believe one of your daughters uh, was the first woman to successfully complete the Air Force, Israel Air Force's pilot course back in 2020. As a father, what are you thinking in this moment? So, yeah, so I'm not sure if everyone knows, but in Israel, it's mandatory to enlist to the military for boys and for girls. Um, but since my daughters grew up in the U.S. and they came over when they were very young, they didn't have to go, but they volunteered to go and to to contribute to to give their fair share to the nation, to the country. And that's what they did. It made us very proud. And not to mention when one of our daughters graduated the uh, flight academy, uh, like I did, that's what I did for so many years. Uh, that was a, a moment of proud. But we are proud of any other daughter who is doing um, 
very important things in in the military. Uh, to your point, I mean, the scale of 300,000 reservists being called up, also the countless stories of Israelis going back home like yourself. What are you preparing for in the days ahead? You said you're going to be there, quote, until further notice. That's that's correct. I, I just want to take specific Logan Airport to Tel Aviv Airport. That was the flight of only military people were coming back and people were coming back to Israel to participate in funerals. So you can imagine how gloomy that flight was, very quiet, very focused. Everyone was focused. Uh, I'm here until further notice, until we can complete what we started, what they started, but we had to uh, fight back um, once and for all. Hopefully, we can bring peace back to the milit- to, to the Mediterranean here and put an end to that because that thing cannot go on like that. It, yeah, the, a, a, um, yeah the, the through line between yeah. the horror and revulsion uh, of six days ago to the uh, emergence and, and uh, resolve of the Israeli people has been something to behold. We appreciate your time. Uh, we give our best to you uh, and your daughters. Boaz Arbel, thank you so much. Well, at this hour, evacuations are underway in northern Gaza after a warning from Israel. And here in the U.S., the House is entering day 10 with no speaker after Representative Steve Scalise dropped out of the race. We're going to tell you what the GOP's next steps are, if they even know. That's ahead. We want to take you straight to Tel Aviv, where Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is giving a press conference with his counterpart. This is what we face in this war. This is a war on the existence of Israel as a prosperous state, as a democratic state, as the homeland of the Jewish people. This is a war on freedom, and on our common values, and we are on the front line. We will keep fighting, and we will win this war. We will prevail. With your permission, Mr. Secretary, I'll say a few words in Hebrew. Ma'az Yom Shabbat, Medinat Israel nimtzet b'milchama. אנחנו נלחמים על הבית, אנחנו נלחמים על העתיד שלנו. והפגישה שסיימנו עכשיו, ידידי מזכיר ההגנה אוסטין ואני, בבור הפיקוד, סיכמנו על שורה של מהלכים וסוגיות אסטרטגיות. אני בטוח כי גם ידידינו ברחבי העולם וגם אויבינו בכל הגזרות מבינים היטב את משמעות הברית הזו ואת משמעות הביקור הזה. מדינת ישראל היא מדינה חזקה, מדינה שבה מתשת... מתקיים שילוב בין צבא עוצמתי לבין מערכת אזרחית עם חוסן לאומי בלתי רגיל. החוסן שמצוי ב-DNA של כל יהודי הוא תוצר של מאבק הישרדות של אלפי שנים. 
We're going to continue, of course, to monitor this press conference. And as we do, let's bring in Colonel Layton with more. Just speak, Colonel, if you could, to the significance of the defense secretary being there right alongside uh, the defense minister of Israel, his counterpart, while Secretary Blinken is also there right after uh, we saw a statement, strong statement from Blinken yesterday with Netanyahu. Yeah, absolutely, Poppy. So this is a hugely significant development that the Secretary of Defense is with, uh, basically in tandem, the Secretary of State in this region where there's so much going on and where really the nexus of uh, attention is on Gaza. Uh, but the reason that Gaza is so important is that it really is part of a larger uh, issue that goes on, not only to the existence of Israel as a state, but it also goes to the fact that uh, the various powers in the Middle East, everyone from Iran to Saudi Arabia uh, to Syria, all of these powers have relations with other countries, including Russia and, to a lesser extent, China. Uh, and it's very important for the U.S. to show itself as a present force in the Middle East. We've done so traditionally for many years, but now it becomes really important for us to continue to do that, especially during this time where it's such a stressful and critical time for the existence of Israel itself. Colonel Layden, we saw Secretary Blinken talk about the kind of mass diplomatic effort, also the very, I think, poignant show of support, visual support. Um, the Secretary of Defense being there, I think, is coming at the same time more U.S. military aid is coming. How critical is U.S. military aid and the continuation of it uh, to what lies ahead for Israel? It's essential, Phil. Uh, without U.S. military aid, uh, there will be no ability to, for the Israelis to continue uh, to fire into Gaza, either using air power or uh, using artillery. Uh, so it becomes really important for there to be a complete supply line. It's basically logistics uh, being that critical factor. But it's also critical from an intelligence standpoint, because the intelligence, although it's been listed as a failure in anticipation of the Hamas strikes against Israel. Uh, intelligence is critical, and where the United States shines often is in the tactical intelligence arena, and that is the kind of uh, effort and, uh, Colonel, and those kinds of things. We want to interrupt you for a minute. Apologies. We want to listen to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in Tel Aviv. Even during such terrible days, as a U.S. Secretary of Defense, I am here in person to make something crystal clear. America's support for Israel is ironclad. And I extend my deepest condolences to the Israeli people for those killed or wounded in this terrible slaughter by Hamas. I'm also here in solidarity with all the families still living the waking nightmare of not knowing the fate of their loved ones. And we will continue to coordinate closely with Israel to help secure the release of the innocent men, women, and children in the clutches of Hamas, including American citizens. Now, Israel is a small country, a place where everybody knows everybody. And in times of trial, the intimacy of your society deepens the intimacy of your grief. But that's not a weakness, it is a profound strength. And in times of testing, Israelis know what to do. Over this awful week, we've seen Israeli hotels and homes 
taken those who've had to, f to flee. We've seen long lineups to donate blood. We've seen WhatsApps explode with messages as people race to support neighbors in anguish. And perhaps because I'm a retired general, I was especially moved by the story of a retired general named Noam T-Bone. His son called him on Saturday from his home near Gaza to say that Hamas terrorists had stormed their kibbutz and were closing in. And the retired general jumped into his car in Tel Aviv and raced toward the combat zone. He linked up with other fighters and rescued his son, his daughter-in-law, and his granddaughters. And when the general arrived at their house, one of his granddaughters just said, Grandpa's here. And these are rays of hope in a terrible week. And in times like these, sometimes the best, that a, a, the best thing that a friend can do is just to show up and to get to work. Now, this is no time for neutrality or for false equivalence or for excuses for the inexcusable. There is never any justification for terrorism. And that's especially true after this rampage by Hamas. And anyone who wants lasting peace and security for this region must condemn and isolate Hamas. Hamas does not speak for the Palestinian people or their legitimate hopes for dignity, security, and statehood and peace alongside Israel. As a former commander of Central Command, the deliberate cruelty of Hamas vividly reminds me of ISIS. Bloodthirsty, fanatical, and hateful. And like ISIS, Hamas has nothing to offer but zealotry, bigotry, and death. The world has just witnessed a great evil. The deadliest attack on civilians in the history of the state of Israel, and the bloodiest day in Jewish history since the end of the Holocaust. So make no mistake, the United States will make sure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself. And Israel has a right to protect its people. You know, and there are many phone calls this week. President Biden has told Prime Minister Netanyahu that the United States would also respond swiftly and decisively to such a ma massive terrorist assault. And the president also underscored that democracies like ours are stronger and more secure when we uphold the laws of war. Terrorists like Hamas deliberately target civilians. But democracies don't. This is a time for resolve and not revenge, for purpose and not panic and for security and not surrender. At President Biden's direction, we have moved urgently to respond to this crisis 
and to send, to send a strong message of deterrence. The USS Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group is now in the region, led by the largest aircraft carrier in the world. We've augmented U.S. fighter aircraft squadrons in the Middle East, and the U.S. Department of Defense stands fully ready to deploy additional assets if necessary. As President Biden has said, for any country, for any group, or anyone thinking about trying to take advantage of this atrocity, to try to widen the conflict or to spill more blood, we have just one word. Don't. The world is watching, and so are we. And we aren't going anywhere. We will remain in close contact with our valued partners across the region, and security assistance from the Department of Defense is already rapidly flowing into Israel. That includes munitions and air defense capabilities, and other equipment and resources. It also includes more interceptors for Iron Dome to save Israeli lives. And we will continue to ensure that Israel has what it needs to keep itself secure. Now, Hamas attacked at a time of global challenge. But the United States is the most powerful country in the world. And we remain fully able to project power and uphold our commitments and direct resources to multiple theaters. So we will stand with Israel even as we stand with Ukraine. The United States can walk and chew gum at the same time. And U.S. Sec security assistance to Israel will flow in at the speed of war. And as this harrowing week draws to a close, and as Shabbat draws near, we stand together, and we stand strong. The United States has Israel's back, and that is not negotiable, and it never will be. And after this terrible week, I wish you and all the people of Israel Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. We'll be starting with the question, starting with Alon Ben David, Channel 13. Thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Um, your presence in the Eastern Mediterranean clearly projects power, but should Israel be attacked from the north, from Hezbollah in Lebanon, will you be willing to exercise your force and join the fighting? You know, I ordered additional assets to the region to bolster deterrence. And Again, the message that we would send to any country or group thinking to take advantage of this situation and widen the conflict, don't. I won't speculate on, on anything that could happen in the future. I will just tell you clearly that the United States will continue to support Israel's right to defend itself. Please, a question to the Defense Minister. Mr. Gallant, you talked at the beginning of the week about the fact that the goal of the mission is to destroy Hamas. And the Israelis are asking themselves, what is the meaning of this? Do you 
מה אתה מקווה להשיג במהלך הצבאי שלך, ואיך הוא אמור להסתיים, באיזה מצב חמאס יימצא. What are you hoping to achieve and what is the end result of this? We will destroy the regime of Hamas. We will destruct their ability, their military ability. We will make sure that this threat is no longer on our borders. It will be long, it will be lethal, it will be powerful, and it will be for good. Matt Seiler, ABC. Thank you both for doing this. Secretary Austin, the U.S. administration has told Israel to avoid causing civilian casualties and to uphold what you called just now the laws of war. Given how Hamas fights, deliberately launching operations from dense civilian areas, how could Israel permanently end the terrorist threat posed by Hamas without inevitably risking many civilian lives? And as we watch the civilian death toll in Gaza rise while Israel conducts its counterattacks and perhaps a ground invasion, Do you believe the moral culpability for those Palestinian deaths belongs to Israel, Hamas, or both? I'll leave it to Israel to, uh, to talk about its potential plans and uh, its approach to uh, conducting operations. Uh, Matt, I'll just uh, um, say again that Israel has a right to defend itself, and we will support Israel's right to defend itself. We will continue to flow in security assistance. And I've worked with Israeli forces over the years, over many years. As you know, I wore a uniform for 41 years. My experience in working with the Israeli forces is they are professional, they're disciplined, and they are focused on the right things. And so I expect that uh, going forward, Uh, they will continue to exhibit that same degree of professionalism that we've seen in the past. But you know, Matt, we've seen this before. Uh, the international community fought ISIS, uh, who was, in some cases was, uh, was embedded uh, deeply in built-up areas. And that international coalition uh, fought valiantly and, and protected civilians and created corridors for uh, humanitarian uh, uh, movement. even in the midst of a, of a pretty significant fight. So again, this is a professional force. It is well-led, and I, I have every expectation that it will be disciplined. Thank you. And for Minister Gallant, have you seen evidence that Iran was directly involved in planning or executing the recent attack on your country, or any signs that either Iran or its proxies are seeking to exploit the situation? And if you do come to see signs of an imminent attack on Israel, are you in favor of preemptive strikes? Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas is uh, one axis, an axis of evil. Everything is directed generally from Iran. The permission is given by Iran. The money is supplied by Iran. And uh, the ideas are shaped in Iran. Therefore, it doesn't matter if they give or didn't give the permission, but the idea is an Iranian idea. As to the actions, future actions of IDF, I will uh, stay confidential for good reasons. Thank you. 
Süleyman Masada. Mr. Secretary, thank you for this. Um, House um, Foreign Affairs Chair. There you have a significant press conference ongoing after remarks from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Israel's Defense Minister as well. Uh, very clear, as it was from Secretary Blinken, Lloyd Austin saying America's support for Israel is ironclad. And he also said, in this time of testing, Israel knows what to do. We have team coverage of these remarks back at the table with us today. Israeli Special Operations veteran Aaron Cohen, also Colonel Layton with us. Aaron, in those remarks from both of the men, which also I thought it was so notable that Lloyd Austin said this is no time for neutrality or false equivalence, being just so clear in where America stands and what America is prepared to do. What did you hear? What I heard was uh, uh, a proper line partnership that goes back years between the United States and Israel. We were conducting operations with the United States in a special task force, uh, working together for, for almost a decade, things that nobody uh, has been told uh, the moving of the equipment into the region is a testament to that. We're going to need the U.S. equipment to be able to tap into those signals, to be able to continue to hunt for hostages, to be able to continue to hunt down terrorists. Uh, you can see that the relationship is strong. Uh, uh, the general is not playing around. Uh, he wanted to make it very clear to the world that the U.S. supports Israel and that relationship will not be sh uh, shaken. So... Uh, you know, it was put out there, and uh, and you can see that uh, the messaging was very clear. Yeah, the consistency and clarity from the president and his top officials over the course of the last five or six days has been notable, and to some degree something uh, to behold. Colonel Layton, uh, the secretary made clear, I think his quote was, the U.S. will fly in uh, military aid at the speed of war. What does that mean? We've already seen shipments arrive. The administration has been unequivocal that that will be the case. It will continue for as long as it's necessary. But at the speed of war, what's he mean there? Well, he means as quickly as possible, Phil. And, uh, you know, when you look at speed of war, you're talking about how quickly it may take uh, one of the you know, carrier battle groups to come into this area. We already have the Eisenhower, excuse me, the Gerald Ford in this area right here. The Eisenhower is moving into the region fairly close. Uh, so there will be two carrier battle groups that are going to be associated uh, with this conflict in one way or the other, just through their very presence. And that, I think, becomes a critical thing. So the speed of war means as quickly as possible, and especially when it comes to supplying everything, munitions, intelligence, other supplies, uh, medical supplies, all those kinds of things will be part of that. All right, Colonel Cedric Layden, Aaron Cohen, stay with us. We'll certainly be coming back to you uh, throughout the course of the morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. White House National Security, Security Council spokesman John Kirby is with us. John, thank you very much, Admiral, Admiral Kirby, for joining us. I want to begin, we just heard those very important remarks from Secretary Austin, and, and, and they continue. I want to begin with what Israel is directing people that live in northern Gaza to do. They are saying, go south. I, I think we have the sound. It might not be ready yet, but we spoke with the head of the, one of the colonels of the IDF, who told us immediately. He said the evacuation needs to take place immediately. This is more than a million people. And the U.N. says that's impossible. Does the administration think it is possible? Well, I, I think we're going to be careful not to get into armchair quarterbacking the tactics here on the ground by the IDF. What I 
What I can tell you is we understand what they're trying to do. Uh, they're trying to move civilians uh, out of harm's way and giving them uh, fair warning. Now, it's a tall order. It's a million people, and it's a very urban, dense environment. It's already uh, a combat zone. So I, I don't think anybody's uh, uh, underestimating the challenge here of, of affecting that evacuation, but it's pretty clear that what they're trying to do is is to the maximum extent possible avoid civilian casualties and also separate Hamas from the human shields. I mean, Hamas actually gave a counter order to telling Palestinians in Gaza to stay at home. Uh, why? Because uh, having human shields, they think, protects them. John, isn't that a crucial thing to know for the point you just made, to be able to separate the innocent civilians from the terrorists? If, if, there is, if there is not enough of a window to do that, yeah. then are you putting those civilian lives at risk? I mean, we heard Secretary Blinken say yesterday, how Israel does this matter? So my question is, does the administration think this immediacy makes it possible for those civilians not to be hit? We, we think that there should be no civilian casualties, of course. Uh, and we have all argued now for several days that there ought to be safe passage out of Gaza for any civilians who want to leave. And obviously people uh, who want to leave uh, are going to require probably a little bit of transportation, certainly time uh, to get their affairs in order and to, and to make the move through what is a very dense, pop, densely populated and now uh, a combat zone. So, I mean, obviously, the more time that people have, the better. Um, but I'd let the IDF speak to their to their, the orders they're giving and to the operations that, the, that they're conducting and planning. I, I wouldn't be in a position here from the White House to do that. But obviously, we don't want to see any civilians hurt. So let me ask you this then. Would the administration deem that to include safe passage of civilians out of northern Gaza before Israel carries out a ground incursion? Would anything of sort we, of that be palatable? Go ahead. Uh, of course. Look, we don't want civilians put in harm's way, obviously. So uh, as we've been arguing now for several days, uh, we, we, we do support safe passage out of Gaza, and certainly that includes the ability for people to move safely inside Gaza. These, these Palestinian people, they're, they're victims too. They didn't ask for this. They didn't right. invite Hamas in and say, you know, go hit Israel. So we obviously want to see as much due concern for the civilians there in Gaza as, as can be uh, what about, practically put in place. What about their ability to leave? I mean, the, Ra the Rafa crossing in the southern border in Egypt remains closed. I, I know there That's have right. been discussions between the United States and Egypt and Israel about getting that open. Has there been any progress, John? So far, it's still closed. But that doesn't mean we're not going to still uh, try as hard as we can to, to talk to the Israelis and the Egyptians about getting it open and having some sort of safe passage out. It's just as important, Poppy, that we also continue to work to make sure that humanitarian assistance can get, get in. in. The, United States, the United States has no intention of stopping uh, the, our efforts to uh, continue to deliver humanitarian assistance. Uh, but there has to be a path in. There has to be a path out. So let me just try to probe that a little bit more. Has the LCC government been open at all? To uh, opening for a peer, well, I think it's a really critical question. I'm not asking for specifics, but open at all to a potential short window of exit for people from the south. We're still actively talking to the Egyptians and to the Israelis, and I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. On the hostages front, um, you said yesterday when you spoke to my colleague, Abby, that the U.S. simply does not have enough information about where the hostages are or even how many there are. And as I understand it, the president is going to speak today with the, the families of those believed held. It has been nearly a week since they have been taken hostage. Has the intelligence within Gaza, whether it's from the Israelis or the Americans or combined, improved 
more than it was a week ago that would help on this front? We're working at this very, very hard, every hour by hour. And I'm not going to get into intelligence matters, but we are certainly in direct communication with our Israeli counterparts. And obviously the families, too, have been mm -hmm. uh, a good source of information because some of them, you know, they saw their loved one being abducted or they know they've seen images of their loved one being abducted. So they have been a, a significant and an important source of information as well. But what I told Abby last night, sadly, yeah. is true this morning. We just don't have enough information to develop any and, specific policy options one way or the other. And I do want to give you an opportunity to comment on what Hamas is claiming, that 13 of the hostages have been killed by what they are claiming are Israeli airstrikes. The IDF could not comment on that. I want to give the White House an opportunity if it knows anything. Can't, I can't confirm those okay. reports. I've seen, I've seen the statements, but uh, we can't confirm it. You know, John, um, from yesterday afternoon to messages I just received from, you know, loved ones moments ago, some people are very scared in cities across America about what they could face today. I know you have said there are no credible threats, but I just wonder if you could speak to those people who are watching, who heard that day of anger comment from the former Hamas leader. What is yeah. your message to them as people get ready to send their kids to school and make decisions about their day? Yeah, I, I, want, I want them to know that uh, President Biden and this administration is staying vigilant. Um, and we were already days ago thinking about this exact potential uh, and working with close, uh, closely with state and local authorities, connecting them with federal law enforcement and the intelligence community to make sure that we can identify and disrupt any potential threat. Okay. Nobody should have to worry about going to school or work or, or recreation uh, for their own safety because of uh, anti-Semitic uh, mm -hmm. uh, violence or, or violence that may be propagated by, by Hamas. We're on this. We're vigilant. We're watching this very, very closely. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the mess in the House because it really matters for increased funding for Israel. The president said this week in that very strong speech on Tuesday he will call on Congress to act on Israel funding. There's no speaker. Who knows when there will be one? Is there a plan B? Well, we're going to continue to work with Congress. I mean, there's, it, you know, it, this is really on the House Republican uh, mm -hmm. caucus to, to figure out who their leader is going to be. A Speaker of the House, just procedurally, is critical to moving legislation forward. And to get additional funding, we need additional legislation. So, obviously, uh, we urge uh, the House Republicans to come to closure on this as soon as possible, elect a Speaker, so that we can uh, actually get meaningful yeah. supplemental funding uh, through, the, through the Congress and onto the President's desk. Yeah. It's, it's urgent. We need it. There's the Israelis yeah. need it. The Ukrainians right. need it. I was just going to say, you need it. The American people need it. The Israelis and Ukrainians as well. Thank you, John Kirby at the White House, very much. You bet. Well, you just heard Poppy ask Kirby about this here in the U.S. The House is entering day 10 with no speaker after Representative Steve Scalise dropped out late last night. We're going to tell you what the GOP's next steps are. You heard about the urgency. What's next ahead? Those are live pictures of the U.S. Capitol, where things aren't exactly progressing at a quick pace. In just a few hours, House Republicans will meet again after Majority Leader Steve Scalise dropped out of the race for Speaker just 24 hours after being nominated. If you look at over the last few weeks, if you look at where our conference is, there's still work to be done. Uh, our conference still has to come together and is not there. Uh, there are still some people that have their own agendas and I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. Meantime, Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio, says he will announce today whether he will launch another bid for speaker after losing to Scalise inside the conference. Today marks day 10 without a speaker of the House. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us live from Capitol Hill. Lauren, what happens next year? 
Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, Phil. Right now, what we can expect is at 10 a.m. this morning, House Republicans are once again going to meet behind closed doors for a conference meeting where we expect that they will discuss the rules to govern their conference through the next phase of this speaker's fight. Like you noted, Jim Jordan is expected to make an announcement at some point this morning about whether or not he will launch another bid for speaker or not. But there are already a number of Republicans who are making it clear that they may never back. Jim Jordan. And in fact, you heard yesterday from Ann Wagner from Missouri, as well as Austin Scott from Georgia, who argued that Jim Jordan is not the right candidate to lead the House Republican Conference. So right now, the conference is deeply divided. And the fact that there is just a small majority in the House of Representatives for Republicans means that there could be any handful of Republicans who could hold up any future nominee for speaker. So, so many unanswered questions. We are now in day 10 of a speakerless House, or at least a House that doesn't have a speaker that could put any legislation on the floor of the House. And there are real and urgent needs that need to be met. First among them, of course, potentially more aid for Israel. Phil, Poppy. All right. Lauren Fox, live for us on Capitol Hill. Thank you. And CNN This Morning continues right now. This is CNN Breaking News. It is the top of the hour. We continue to follow all of the breaking news out of Israel and Gaza. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. It is 8 a.m. here on the East Coast, 3 p.m. in Tel Aviv, where Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is on the ground right now. You just heard from him speaking as this war between Israel and Hamas intensifies with up to 150 hostages, including Americans believed held in Gaza. And we will continue to coordinate closely with Israel to help secure the release of the innocent men, women, and children in the clutches of Hamas, including American citizens. Now, this is no time for neutrality or for false equivalence or for excuses for the inexcusable. There is never any justification for terrorism. This morning, Hamas is claiming that Israel's bombardment of Gaza has killed 13 of those hostages, but the Israeli military cannot confirm that, nor can the White House. Meanwhile, Israel is warning more than one million people need to evacuate south immediately in Gaza as hundreds of thousands of Israeli troops massed near the border. Thousands of leaflets were dropped over Gaza City. Joining us now is CNN's Nick Robertson and Sarot Israel. Nick, uh, if I have this right, you just saw, I think what you told our, our team, one of the largest plumes of smoke blasts you've seen uh, in Gaza City. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, this is smoke you see behind me is rising out of the northern end of the Gaza Strip. It would just be just slightly to the north, perhaps, of Gaza City itself, an area of a deep concentration of people. Now, the Israeli Defense Force uh, say that last night there was very heavy shelling uh, in the northern area of Gaza. We were standing here through the night. We could hear it uh, through, the, uh, through the night. Very heavy uh, missile strikes and artillery strikes. Indeed, the Israeli Defense Force say that so far in the past six days, they have targeted Gaza and specifically Hamas, its infrastructure, its military command posts, its military commanders with 6,000 missiles. That, according to the IDF's own figures, is already more than they launched, in, launched on Gaza in the war in 2014 that lasted 50 days. So that gives you a sense of the scale of the amount of ordnance that's being dropped. 
huge plume of smoke right now. We don't know what it, wh where that's coming from. But the announcement this morning by the Israeli Defense Force that uh, Palestinians should move south uh, of the Gaza Strip, move out of Gaza City. Um, initially, it appeared that they were giving a 24-hour deadline. The UN had interpreted it that way. The UN says that is impossible to do create a humanitarian disaster on the ground. Indeed, one UN agency says already more than 400,000 Palestinians already displaced from their homes at the moment. Um, the IDF has clarified and said there is no 24-hour deadline on that, but it is a very clear instruction for uh, Palestinian civilians to move south in the Gaza Strip. Hamas is telling them not to do that because they don't trust uh, the Israelis or their motives behind this. It is uh, for the Palestinians there who are caught up at the other end of these missiles a very, very testing and difficult time. One doctor CNN talked to there said, we literally live second by second. It is an impossible situation. He said everyone wants it to end immediately. All right, Nick Robertson for us in Stero, thank you. And now I want to take you to our Aaron Burnett. She is in Israel. But Aaron, you are right near the Egypt-Gaza border. And this is a crucial position to be in, especially since that Rafa crossing in the south is closed. Aaron, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Mm hmm. Yes. All right. So, Poppy, um, right now we are right along that, that border, uh, Gaza-Egypt-Israel border, about three miles from Gaza, about 10 miles from uh, the Egyptian border and Rafah, the only... Uh, the only crossing between Egypt and Gaza, which, of course, is closed right now. And as you can see behind us, uh, these are Merkava tanks, most of them. We have just seen an entire uh, convoy of them coming around. Um, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. Poppy and, and Phil, we're going to just pass it back to you right now. We just have some IDF troops coming over. We'll come back up in just sure. a couple moments, okay? I'll, I'll send it back to you. All right, Aaron, thank you so much. We'll get back to you uh, when we can. I think, Phil, that just shows how all of this is happening in real time as our reporters, like Aaron, are trying to get to the most crucial places in this war to tell the story of exactly what is happening. And I think to take a step back, if we can, given it's been very difficult, just how fluid and fast-moving this story has been, the horrors that transpired only six days ago. But in following our teams on the ground throughout our show, throughout our 24-hour coverage, you realize how quickly they're moving to different places, right. what they're seeing, how quickly uh, military personnel, uh, equipment, everything is happening as we're watching what's happening in Gaza. Now, there's been an evacuation order. Um, we have reporters and teams that have so much experience there and I think even they at this point um, have acknowledged that this is such a dynamic situation mm -hmm. for them to follow. It absolutely is. We'll get back to Erin as soon as we can as we wait for her report uh, from the South there. Let's go to Priscilla Alvarez. She joins us from the White House. As we understand it, President Biden sat down for an interview uh, with 60 Minutes and part of the discussion, of course, about hostages, particularly Americans believed to potentially be held. What can you tell us? That's right, Poppy. And we've learned that President Biden is expected to speak with the families of Americans who are believed to be held hostage by Hamas. And his reasoning for that is to make clear to them that he, quote, deeply cares. Take a, take a listen. 
Why do you feel so strongly about speaking to these families personally on Zoom? Because I think they have to know that the President of the United States of America cares deeply about what's happening. Deeply. We have to communicate to the world this is critical. This is not even human behavior. It's, it's pure barbarism. And we're going to do everything in our power to get them home if we can find them. Now, a source tells me that this is a call that's expected to happen later today. And what we know from the White House is that there are 14 Americans unaccounted for, and they have characterized those held hostage as a handful, a very small number. And this is something that the White House and administration officials are working around the clock to wrap their arms around. You heard shortly ago from National Security Spokesman John Kirby, who said that they still don't have many details about the conditions of these uh, hostages, where they may be held, and they're working hour by hour on this. But for now, what we know is that today, the president is expected to talk to some of those families and express his, uh, his sympathies as well as what they may know so far. Poppy, uh, Bill? Certainly working around the clock for that. Priscilla, thanks very much. And now to a CNN investigation that analyzes two years of Hamas propaganda training videos. And it identified six training camps that the militant terrorist group and its affiliates used to train for the attack over the weekend. Clarissa Ward led this reporting. She joins us now. It is stunning what people are about to see. Walk us through it, Clarissa. Well... Poppy, obviously, with all this talk of an imminent ground offensive, the questions uh, of the failures of Israeli intelligence are front and center. And our own uh, open source investigator, Paul Murphy, spent days pouring through years worth of satellite imagery, social media videos, trying to put together a picture of how Hamas was able to train for last Saturday's brutal attacks for years, right under Israel's nose. Take a look. Propaganda videos put out by Hamas reveal chilling details about the years of preparations that went into Saturday's bloody attacks right under Israel's nose. Analyzing metadata from the videos, a CNN investigation can reveal the presence of at least six training sites inside Gaza, one just 720 meters from the most heavily fortified and patrolled part of Israel's border. In that camp, Hamas recreated an Israeli compound with elements of the nearby border crossing, including an insignia of the Erez battalion. The videos show they even practiced taking prisoners and zip-tying their hands at the camp. Satellite imagery indicates the camp was constructed within the last year and a half. At two other locations in the southern part of Gaza, Hamas trained for their audacious paraglider assault, rehearsing takeoffs and landings. At all six sites, two years of satellite imagery reviewed by CNN shows no indication of offensive Israeli military action. The imagery instead shows that in the last two years, some camps even expanded into surrounding farmland and that there was activity in the last several months at the camps. The stunning revelations raise questions as to how Hamas was able to train so openly, so close to the border for so long, and why Israeli officials were unable to pick up on and prevent the October 7th attack. 
So, of course, we have reached out to the Israeli military to get some kind of response, and we did get a comment. They said, we cannot provide answers to your questions since they relate to the complex analysis of intelligence at the same time that we are fighting a war. This topic, together with numerous other issues, will be investigated by the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, at the end of the war. And I think that's an attitude that uh, you see broadly reflected here, Poppy. There is a lot of anger uh, among people you talk to. There are a lot of questions and people do want answers, but there's also a kind of acceptance uh, that the priority right now is dealing with the more immediate and pressing concerns particularly, of course, that hostage situation, though coming back full circle, these intelligence failures do raise real questions about some of the challenges that Israel might face if it does launch a ground incursion. Uh, 17 years Hamas has held the Gaza Strip. So um, this would be a very challenging fight for Israelis and a lot of people asking uh, whether mistakes that have been made before or questions that are now being asked could contribute to that. Poppy, Phil? Clarissa, just, just so everyone understands, those videos that we saw throughout your report, those were publicly available on different social media platforms. Is that right? That's right. These are Hamas propaganda videos. And I think what's interesting, Poppy, it's not like they just released all of these videos after these attacks. Some of these videos were actually put out in the open space uh, before the attacks happened. So anybody can watch these. And I should add, you know, Paul Murphy was the one who went through them laboriously, but Israeli media have also been talking a lot about this issue. They've also uh, been combing through these videos and they are uh, quite shocked by what they have found, particularly that one camp less than a kilometer yeah. from the Erez border crossing with a literal replica uh, of the Arab Battalion insignia. There are certainly real questions here to be answered, Poppy. Clarissa, kind of tied to this, but stepping back a little bit, you've been in country, it's been six days since a horrific attack. Is this issue a peripheral issue? Because we've seen so much resolve, resiliency, kind of pressing forward. How are people feeling right now? I think that when you talk to people, you know, I, I think everybody in Israel right now, and obviously I can't speak for the entire country, but the vast majority of people that I have spoken to seem to agree that the most important issue right now is dealing with the threat of Hamas and dealing with uh, the horrifying tragedy of these more than 100 hostages who are still being held. So that is the most pressing issue on everybody's minds. At the same time, you will often have conversations here with people where they are openly angry about what happened, where they feel there have been real failings uh, on behalf of Israeli intelligence, also on behalf of the Israeli military. But there does seem to be some sort of consensus that that is a topic for broader uh, conversation at a later date, that it merits deep investigation. Those investigations are going to take weeks, if not months, and, and that the focus and the priority right now uh, should be on dealing with these more pressing and immediate concerns. Of course, as I just mentioned before, the two do feed into each other, particularly when you're talking about a possible uh, ground incursion. 
Absolutely. They, they definitely do. Clarissa, thank you for that. It is stunning and important to see for you. And thanks to our Paul Murphy, our colleague as well, uh, for that reporting. So heightened security concerns, not just in the region, but around the globe as protesters take to the streets around the world. Here in the United States, major cities taking precautions. We'll have more on that ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We are looking at live pictures and from Baghdad at a moment when law enforcement in cities around the globe are on high alert. These new pictures where hundreds of thousands are gathering in a huge pro-Palestinian protest. Joining us now, CNN Senior Global Affairs Analyst Bianca Goldriga, CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller, and Israeli Special Operations Veteran and Law Enforcement Trainer Aaron Cohen. Um, guys, thanks for joining the table. I want to get into the kind of law enforcement elements of this in a minute. Um, but what we were just talking about during the break, I think, is really important to discuss, which is um, people are scared right now. People are furious. And I'm not talking about people in the region. I'm talking about people here. Um, you know, you had a tweet last night, I think, that caught my eye and I think kind of captured this to some degree about schools closing. I'm going to get it wrong. Oh, it's right on the screen. Um, about schools closing in New York. Can you explain to people who feel like this is something that's happening far away from us. Why is this having such a dramatic effect on Americans and American Jews? Yeah, Why? I debated on whether or not I would send that tweet because I never want the story to be about me. It's and not, not about you know, me. And I, but and I understand that. I'm not trying to make it yeah, about no, you. It, you know it's just one of those situations where you have to separate your day job from just who you are as a person and the humanity and the lack of, I think, compassion a lot of people are feeling in, in terms of what this means for Jews around the world, what we're seeing in Israel. Um, for years, people have sort of been conflating, well, there's Israel's, there, you know, there are Jews, and, you know, Israel is home to, to Jewish people, right? And there are Jewish people around the world. And when they're seeing what happened and what, ha you know, we're not even a week following the massacre. It's hard to talk to your kids about that. And, you know, everyone's getting letters from schools uh, about how to address this. And in, in 2023, in New York City, when you get, you know, alerts that perhaps maybe you should think about keeping your kids home and maybe you shouldn't go to synagogue, it's really troublesome. And I haven't raised it with my kids. They, you know, they're at school, um, this particular aspect. But I just think it's an important reminder to not only check on our humanity, but also just check on your Jewish friends and neighbors, because it's, it's been a really tough week for everyone. That's right. From the law enforcement perspective, uh, we've seen uh, the preparations of a great piece this morning um, on that. But also, this is not something that happened uh, just now. The anti-Semitic task forces, the, the, from the federal, state, local level, this has been accelerating to match an accelerating threat and rhetoric over the course of the last several years, where are things right now? Well, New York is kind of unique in that regard in that we literally live on high alert as normal in the post 9-11 world. The city went through a terrible mass murder. It went through a trauma. It went through an intelligence failure. Uh, we've seen all of that. So we put more resources in New York City into the counterterrorism and intelligence venue of the police department than any other city probably on the planet. Uh, that said, fear is fear. Um, people are nervous. They're watching social media, frankly, to be candid. They're reacting to rumors and speculation. Um, but we also have to remind ourselves, fear is the oxygen that makes the flames of terrorism survive. 
This is what they're counting on. So it comes down to this personal question for people, which is, do I actually have information that I should be worried about at a time when everybody's saying there's no specific credible threat, uh, knowing that there's always some risk in the world? Um, and I'm, am I going to give in to fear? When you inject you know, the, the specter of children into that, it gets even more complicated emotionally for parents. But what officials are saying is, go about your business, be vigilant. We're doing all we can. Uh, you're part of that. Aaron, can I uh, turn the topic to... Can I add to that? Sure. I, and, and this man has built counterterrorist programs for New York and Los Angeles. Um, and I agree that the, the fear feeds the flame, and it's fine to go about your business. Uh, I'm also a reserve deputy. I live in Los Angeles. And I'll say this. Why feed the bear? And what I mean by that is... You can go about your day and do your business, but regarding the synagogues, the Jewish schools, there's real action that's happening right now. And LAPD, LASD, law enforcement around the country, we don't know what actionable intelligence they have on potential sleeper cells. And I'm not trying to f uh, spark the flame. So the question is, do you have security at your, at your school? Are they trained? Are they armed? This man knows the average response time for LAPD, for Beverly Hills, for Santa Monica Police Department. Uh, I don't know, know New York as well, but I know they get around pretty quickly. Are they trained in active shooter response or security? Is there a little bit of behavioral or predictive behavioral profiling training sprinkled in there? So <clears throat> where I come out, look at the intelligence failure of the Mossad, one of the finest institutions in the world, and then ask ourselves, if Israel didn't get it right, what should we be doing? We need to at least be layered up to some capacity. People are yelling and screaming. Let's get together and, and, and cause chaos. That's where I come up. But I'm with John on the psychological tactics being used by terror. Whoever's more scared is losing. That's, that's how that works. Right. The, point, yeah, the, the point that he's making. I, I agree with all of that. And part of the story that we had on earlier in the show is... Uh, the Community Security Alliance, which, um, you know, organizations like the UJA and ADL have literally gone out um, and trained personnel at synagogues, at Jewish schools, at uh, symbolic locations, um, have trained teachers, have trained staff. Um, there are layers of protection, and so many of them have security. But the watchword today, literally today, was uh, limit your access, lock all your doors, and run one entrance and exit. Uh, know your visitors, positive ID, check your packages and delivery. Are you expecting them? Do you recognize them? So they have kind of stepped up to the idea of, you know, we woke up five, five days ago in a world that has been adjusted and we have to adjust to towards it. And let's be it. crystal clear. These are protests called by Hamas. Hamas. This is not, you know, in solidarity with Palestinians. There are so many people, so many Jewish people, it doesn't even matter your background who want freedom and dignity for Palestinians. Mm -hmm. These protests that are called for today, what we're seeing around the world is incited by Hamas. And that is what's so frustrating, is that we're not seeing more outrage in terms of differentiating the two. Hamas should not be representing the plight I'm of the so Palestinian glad you did, people. And we need to continue to. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate it. Bianca, John, Aaron, uh, we appreciate it. Well, overnight,
Israel issued a new warning to citizens of Gaza and called for evacuations in one of Gaza's most populated cities. In a statement sent to citizens of Gaza City, the IDF called for residents to, quote, evacuate south for your own safety and the safety of your families and distance yourself from the Hamas terrorists who are using you as human shields. In a statement to CNN, the United Nations said the evacuations were supposed to take place within the next 24 hours. Now, the IDF did not specify a timeline for residents to leave. Gaza City is home to more than one million people. The U.N. Secretary General calling the overnight order, quote, impossible and warning of devastating humanitarian consequences. Joining us now from Amman, Jordan, is Tamara uh, Alfarai, is the, uh, apologies for mispronouncing your name, uh, she's the Director of Strategic Communications for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. The agency already moved its operations uh, and staff to southern Gaza. Uh, to that point, where, where do things stand uh, right now, given how fast moving this has been over the course of the last 12 hours? Yes, good morning. Uh, things are uh, pretty chaotic and extremely worrying right now in Gaza. Uh, as you rightly said, uh, my colleagues, my international colleagues, moved from our headquarters in the northern part of Gaza to the southern part of Gaza after we received a warning that our installations would no longer be safe. Now, along with the with my colleague, on the move are more than 1.4 million people in Gaza. These are ordinary Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip with their families, including pregnant women, children, children with disabilities, all of them on the run because they're looking for safety. So the situation right now is very chaotic, and we're extremely worried as these people are on the move while the uh, air bombing, the airstrikes uh, continue. Are you coordinating evacuations out of the schools that you, you and your colleagues have run in northern Gaza? Right now, we are not able to coordinate any evacuation, but we're also not able to continue assisting people who are in these. We're talking about almost 220,000 people in schools and other buildings that belong to the UN, that belong to UNRWA. We were supposed to, to provide these people with food, clean water, and other uh, essentials that they need because they have been displaced from their homes. However, by no longer being able to assist them, we do not know what will become of them. Many of them are moving to the south. In the south, we do have 12 schools where people can seek uh, shelter. However, these schools are not even ready to receive them. So we're looking at a really, really disastrous humanitarian situation in the hours and days to come. Can you explain why you are not able to help with their, with their evacuation and why you are not able to get that aid in specifically? Because, first of all, the Gaza Strip is completely sealed. So whatever food clean water or other supplies we have are very limited and we're still not able to get more supplies in. Last night around midnight, my colleagues in Gaza received a warning from the Israeli Defense Forces to evacuate our own compound because of the airstrikes that were being planned. My colleagues left the compound to our uh, building in the south. We could not take with us almost a quarter million people in our schools. Everybody received the same warning. We at UNRWA, we're the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, we feel very responsible for the people who are sheltering in our schools. 
but we also feel completely at loss as to what kind of advice we can give them. Given the ongoing bombing and airstrikes, we do not know how to help them move safely. And therefore, our call right now at the highest political and diplomatic levels is to allow us to keep a humanitarian space where we're able to operate safely and help those in need. My colleagues in our new location in the, the south of Gaza just told me now about a nine-month-old pregnant woman who managed to get into um, the, the compound with my colleagues. We do not know how to deliver her. We have one medic with us, but that person has never delivered babies before. So the situation is very, very dire. We absolutely need to be able to assist these people, and therefore we need to be able to move more safely and without being bombed or targeted, to be able to deliver food, clean drinking water, fuel, and other kind of assistance, including psychological assistance to those people in Gaza who are traumatized by the severity of the bombing these last few days. Tamara Al-Rafai, thank you for being with us and also our deepest condolences. I know that you have lost, I believe it is now a dozen of your colleagues in this effort. Thank you. Well, in Israel, families are starting to bury those killed in Saturday's attack. We're going to speak to a rabbi in Israel who is helping identify and prepare the bodies for burials. That's next. So we are learning more of the names of the 25 Americans killed in Saturday's Hamas attacks. Arye Shlomo Ziering was a 27-year-old dual Israeli-American citizen. He was a captain in the Israel Defense Forces K-9 unit. Danielle Walden attended the music festival where her boyfriend and she were killed. And Ite Glisko was 20 years old and an Israeli soldier. His family said his death is, quote, a loss to humanity. 1,300 Israelis have been killed in Hamas's attack. That is the count thus far. Now, in Israel, families are starting to bury the loved ones. Joining us now is Rabbi Eliada Goldvicht, a reservist working within Israel Defense Forces Search and Rescue Unit in Central Israel. Rabbi, thank you for being with us. Your perspective on all of this is so unique because as a rabbi, you are working to comfort those and bury those while also stepping up to serve your country. What is your perspective now, six days after the attack? So thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, to speak and, and share what I'm going through on a daily basis. Basically, my role in the army is to, as quickly as possible, identify those who were murdered, brutally murdered, raped, killed in the most tedious ways possible. And we try to do so as fast as possible, because we know that right now there are hundreds of families in Israel who do not know if their son, daughter, brother, sister, father, mother was murdered, was taken captive, and who knows what's happening to them by you know, the Hamas, or if they're just shell-shocked and hidden, you know, under some shelf somewhere. So we know that every minute that's wasted is a minute that a family is not getting closure and the soldiers on the front line are. So we feel that Israel is really right now fighting on, on two fronts. There's the front of defending ourselves, making sure that the terrorists do not invade and murder us, like has happened throughout our history, unfortunately, many times that so many thousands of people have tried to annihilate the Jewish people. Um, and then the second front is to give closure to these families as quickly as possible and really do that in the most respectful and dignified way. Rabbi, as I understand it, you have had to do the unthinkable, and that includes holding, holding babies who were killed in this terror attack. 
How do you even begin to try to comfort their families while also telling them what has happened to their children? So thank God I, I'm not in charge of uh, informing the families. Mm. There's different units that do different things. I, I try to identify yeah. uh, as quickly as possible. I, I can tell you that these hands have held uh, a baby that was, that was murdered. Um, and having children at home, it's, it is the most heart-wrenching thing that you, can, that you can imagine. Tell people who don't know um, what Jewish law dictates in terms of how those have been, who have been killed are buried, because that is very significant as well. So in the eyes of Jewish law and Jewish custom, we have the utmost respect for the living, but showing the respect for the living is also by showing respect for the, those who were deceased and those who were killed, and specifically those who were murdered just for being Jews. There's a special place in heaven, according to Jewish tradition, that is for people who were murdered just for the fact that they're Jews. All these, some of these people, they were not religious, they didn't you know, believe in God, uh, but they were killed just for one reason, and that's because they were dead. And we take the utmost responsibility. We know that every that these people are, are holy, and there's a lot of laws that dictate, that show us how to respect them. We don't drop a body, God forbid. We lower it slowly. If there's a drop of blood that comes out, we clean it. We make sure that it's buried with the deceased. We ask forgiveness at the end of dealing with the bodies. We, we tell them, we say that we're, we apologize if we did something inappropriately. We're doing this for, for you to you know, to give you and your family, you know, the comfort and the closure as quickly as possible. Rabbi, thank you very much for being with us to share your experience and also for all of the comfort that I know you are trying uh, to give everyone. Thank you. you if I can just yes, go ahead. In, if I can just share one, one last thing. Tonight is Friday night, which is the Sabbath. And in Judaism, we light two candles. Every Jewish home, we light two candles. And some have a, a custom that they'll light a candle for every child that's born. So I have four children, thank God. So my wife, besides for the two candles we light for the Sabbath, we light four other candles to show that every child that is born adds light to the home. Today, there are over a thousand families in Israel who that candle has been extinguished. And what I ask you and your viewers and all those who identify with being good, you know, good over evil and, and love over hate is to the next time you see your children, to appreciate that, to give them a hug, to give them a kiss, to realize that they're really a light uh, and know that our brothers, we, we feel very connected to the American people and we feel very supported by you. And to just know that, unfortunately, we don't have that. A lot of families here don't have that and everyone should really appreciate, you know, what they do have. We will do that. It is the least we can do, Rabbi. Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much. Well, as the war between Israel and Hamas intensifies, there are protests around the Middle East. These are live pictures of a protest in Yemen. We're going to continue our live coverage. Stay with us. This morning, Israel's warning more than one million citizens to evacuate northern Gaza and move south. Joining us now, Republican Senator from Florida, Marco Rubio. He's the vice chair on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, Senator, just to start, uh, the scale of the evacuation that would be necessary here that's being called for is extraordinarily complex. Uh, are you concerned about the, the kind of burgeoning humanitarian crisis that may develop? Well, I think if it that does develop, it will be Hamas's fault. They, this is the playbook they have run repeatedly, and Hezbollah, to some extent, does the exact same thing. And that is they attack Israel, they kill a bunch of Jews, and then they retreat back into Gaza. They hide behind human shields deliberately. 
Uh, they have been messaging for days on their, when they had their TV network running and their radio stations telling people not to leave their homes. So these guys hide behind civilians. Then the attacks come in response and, um, and unfortunately people die. And then they run to the global press and say, look what horrible things Israel's doing and everyone pressures Israel to stop. Hamas survives, they come back and kill more Jews again. That's the pattern that continues to repeat itself. So I think for days now, Israel, from the very beginning, has been messaging that, and they take extraordinary steps to try to avoid it. But when your killers are literally using human beings as shields and hide behind them, those guys are in the tunnels. They're down there in the system of tunnels they have with their own bunkers, their own uh, fuel supply, their own food supply, and they leave the civilians to die. It's their, these guys don't value life. They don't value any life, uh, but, and they certainly don't value the lives of their own people. And, and they want to be the government of their own country, uh, which, which you can only imagine. So, um, it, look, this is a very difficult situation. I just don't know what other option Israel has. How can they possibly coexist with an organization that doesn't just butcher babies, but has an express an explicit purpose of existing is, the, is to drive all Jews out of the region and create an, uh, a new country that stretches from the Mediterranean to the Jordan with no Jews and run by a fundamentalist Islamic government like right. Hamas. Senator, you, you're a leading foreign policy uh, voice inside your party in the Senate, along with being the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. To that point, and I know this is several steps ahead, but, but what happens then if... Hamas is uprooted, if it's decapitated, if it's defeated uh, in the frame of ISIS. That's a, that's a power vacuum there. That's a governance vacuum. What fills it in that region? Well, first of all, Hamas has not always governed over Gaza. They allegedly won an election back in 2006 and since then have not had another one. But do you have uh, faith in the they, Palestinian they, Authority to come in, given how they've operated in the West Bank? Well, that's the complexity of this whole situation, right? And that's when people talk about a two-state solution. In order to have that, you have to have somebody, some trusted party on the other side that you can work with. You cannot have a two-state solution or a negotiation with any entity that exists for the express purpose of your destruction. Now, I have my own problems with the Palestinian Authority and the things that they have done, but at least in their organizing principles, they, they acknowledge that there is a role to play for a Jewish state. Now, you know, I, I don't know how much they mean that. There's obviously some nuances involved in there. But Hamas, Hamas ex and exists for the express purpose of destroying Israel and, and eliminating the Jewish state. In fact, the Hamas argument, basically, to Palestinians is, trust us instead of, of the Palestinian Authority. We are even harsher than they are. We will kill more Jews. We will run them out of here. And, and we will create the, the Palestinian state that stretches all of what we know today to be Israel, not just the West Bank and not just Gaza. In some respects, these attacks and the ones from 2021 are as much a domestic play as they are an anti-Israeli play. It is them trying to position themselves as the most prominent uh, Palestinian uh, faction right. in the area. And, and, and they believe that kidnapping innocent civilians and murdering babies positions them to do that, to, to be in that role. And, and so I, I, I get the complexity of it. I, I am not going to pretend, and no one should pretend, that they have somewhere in their pocket some master plan that fixes all this. It is a deeply complex situation that stretches back, frankly, thousands of years. Right. Uh, that said, the one thing that's pretty clear is you cannot coexist with an entity that has armaments and the willingness to use them to slaughter your people. You just can't. And underscoring, I think, the complexity that you're talking about is kind of the moment we're in around the world, but also regionally. We've been showing pictures of this kind of day of protests that have been called for by a former Hamas leader. Um, there's an accelerant in a situation, in a geopolitical situation right now that is 
to be candid, seems very, very dicey. What is your view of how this is going to play out broadly in the region? Well, I don't think, any, yeah, I don't think anyone can tell you exactly how it's going to play out. Let me just say one thing. It is one thing to say I am in favor of the Palestinian cause or I think Palestinians are in charge, should have their own country. It's one thing to say that. It's, it's, I think it's a bit naive at this point, but it's something that you can be a position. It is another to say, and I'm going to take to the streets at the beck and call, at the specific instruction of the group that just butchered a bunch of babies. Okay? That, those are two very different things. It's disturbing to see it internationally. It's really disturbing to see Americans uh, and people here in the United States of America in the streets marching in response to a call from the organization that just carried out these atrocities. I think that's very disturbing to see that play out. Now, as far as the region is concerned, look, I think the Jordanians are nervous, right, about what could happen there in their own streets. I think the Egyptians are nervous in that regard, and that's not why they, don't want, they do not want to allow Palestinian refugees into Egypt. I think multiple uh, countries in the region are nervous about the, the, the views of their own population, which is why I see why I think you see some of them put out statements, even as they, uh, from a back doorway, cooperate with Israel on many things, put out these statements because they have their own streets to manage. So that's a real concern. And then the other, obviously, is, you know, we have to keep a very close eye as Israel does move into Gaza and tries to eradicate Hamas. What happens then? Does that now force or trigger a response from Hezbollah and from Iran and from other elements aligned with them? Right. And that's the part that gets... Uh, I don't think anybody should sugarcoat this. This is a very dangerous, very volatile, very unpredictable situation. There's something Israel has to do. They have to get rid of this group. And we should try to mitigate against these other things from happening, becoming a multi-front conflict. Um, but I also think we need to acknowledge that, um, you know, this is a very uncertain terrain and a very dangerous one. And I think everyone's nervous about it, including every country in the region, not just Israel. Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, here's a live look at Capitol Hill, where there is still no Speaker of the House. Republicans are scrambling after Steve Scalise dropped out of the race. So where do they go from here? That's next. I just share with my colleagues, and I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the Speaker-designee. If you look at over the last few weeks, if you look at where our conference is, there's still work to be done. More upheaval in the House just 24 hours after being nominated. Congressman Steve Scalise dropped out of the race for speaker. Joining us now, journalist, author of How's Your Faith, David Gregory. David, it's great to have you. You've got a lot of perspective on D.C. over the years. I, just when this happened and Phil and I were down in D.C., we kept talking about the fact that, well, what if there's a crisis, right? And I was thinking more domestic crisis, but then there is a crisis on the international stage that just how can they not coalesce around someone in a moment like this? How do you explain it? Uh, I don't have an explanation. I think it's another embarrassment for the Republican Party. Mike McFall, who's a very serious lawmaker from Texas, from the Homeland Security Committee, said the world is burning. The world is on yeah. fire. And we can't seem to come uh, to an agreement on a leader. It's a real problem. I mean, at the end of the week here, with all of this chaos among Republicans, but the much graver circumstances around the world. I actually have my eye on Democrats. Uh, mm. How long are Democrats going to stand by in the world of identity politics and zero-sum politics and not be part of any solution? We'll see. I think there's more cards to be played before Democrats jump in. But I think people who don't follow this day in and day out the way we do are looking up and wondering whether Washington has any ability to do their job. 
uh, to pass bills, to pass legislation, to make sure the government is funded, let alone play a role on the world stage, which is what America is still expected to do. do you, David, do you think people even notice? And I don't, I, I, I'm not trying to be flip about it, but it, th there has been so much of this over the course of the last decade plus, which you know as, as well as anybody, and yet this is as, ab as absurd, and to your point, em embarrassing, I'm quoting Republicans when I say that, yeah. as we've ever seen it. And I wonder if people have just totally tuned out. Well, I do think there's a lot of tuning out. I think people just think that, that politics don't really matter, but, I, but they certainly are looking at events around the world and in our country and understanding what the stakes are, um, whether it's the, the, the ferment on college campuses. Uh, and and the the, the anti-Semitic left that's playing out in the wake of this Hamas atrocity and act of terror against Israel this week. Um, it, it's relevant to people's lives when you have kids, when there's security alerts, uh, when the government is closing down and it might affect uh, whether you can go to work, whether you're going to get paid, whether you're going to get fundamental services. And I do think people are paying a lot of attention to the consequences of politics that don't work, that, gov that when government doesn't work, when uh, there's a fear of your freedom being abridged, of institutional breakdown, um, those things do start to creep in. This is not just a debate about higher taxes um, or other events that can seem more benign over the past decades. This is front and center stuff. Uh, David, Phil has been asking the crucial question all morning and for the past couple of days, you just asked Senator Rubio, it, it's, uh, and, and we asked Naftali Bennett, the former Israeli prime minister, so what's next? If Israel's successful in wiping out Hamas, what is next to fill the vacuum? And I, I wonder your thoughts on that, because gosh, that has to be at the forefront of Israelis' minds, the, the administration's mind. Well, it's the crucial question, yes. Um, and there's, a, I think, a lot of ugliness to play out. Um, I think from the point of view of the Biden administration, if you think about how the president has uh, reacted this week with, I think, refreshing moral clarity about what this was, a terrorist attack against Israel, um, I think one of the reasons he's done that and is so stalwart in his support for Israel is to have influence over some of those questions about what is next. Do you worry about a two-front war and the role of Hezbollah uh, in the north? Is there an opportunity here to perhaps empower the Palestinian Authority? American governments, going back to George W. Bush, have been 100% behind a two-state solution, the creation of a Palestinian state. Um, and President Biden, his administration would support that as well. But you've got to have real Palestinian leadership. Hamas is not leadership. Hamas is terrorism. Hamas is, just wants to destroy Israel. There's no negotiation with Hamas. The Palestinian Authority uh, has at least the potential, as Senator Rubio was alluding to, uh, to be a real partner, as problematic as that's been over the years. So uh, I think that's what you look for down the road. But I think the intermediate step is the extent to which President Biden and his team have the ability to have any influence over what's about to transpire um, in Gaza over the, the days and, and weeks to come, which I'm sure is going to be uh, uh, just a continuation of, of the horror uh, and the ugliness of what we've seen, because it is a war. And I think the Israeli leadership has made very clear what they're prepared to do now. David Gregory, we appreciate your time uh, and insight, Thanks. as always. Thank you. Thank you. And CNN is following all the developments on the ground in Israel. CNN News Central picks up right after this break. Have a good weekend.
That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.